hi everybody, it's Autumn coming at you from the editing room on my bad earbud microphone just to give you a quick little programming note at the top of the episode. Um, as I'm recording this, it's Monday the 21st of September. Normally we would record, or this episode is going to go out tomorrow on the 22nd and then normally we would record on Wednesday the 23rd. Um, I'm getting a surgery next Tuesday the 29th. Um, I will be recovering for about a month, and um, on Wednesday, I am gonna have a doctor's appointment to get like all the last little preparation done for the surgery, and so I'm a little freaked out about it. It's not a huge deal, but it's very nerve-wracking, and so um, we are not gonna be recording on Wednesday. Not 100% sure when we'll be back. Certainly, um, I, I would guess, I would guess, like, looking at the Wednesdays in October, maybe the 14th or the 21st, depending on how I'm feeling. Um, so, yeah, we'll be gone for a couple weeks, um, and then we'll just get back into Elantris. Um, this episode is really good. Uh, this episode's really good. I think we have really figured out a lot of stuff that is going to make the show work, and so I'm excited for y'all to hear it, and so... Uh, you're gonna hear our uh, lovely Kevin McLeod uh, Game Boy sound music, and then on to the show. It's a long one today. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Welcome back to Ars Arcanum, a podcast exploring Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere setting, universe, and de- project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Nora. I'm joined by Tilly. Hi, I'm Tilly. Who are you joined and, by? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm joined by Autumn. Hi, I'm Autumn. I'm coughing. <coughs> not the not the coughing. coughing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, We're back. Another week. It's episode three. Another another fortnight, I guess. We can just say fortnight. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, another yeah, this is fantasy. We can say fortnight all we want. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're recording across the many leagues between us through the power of the internet. That's I re- true. I, I started reading Pride and Prejudice. They say fortnight like once a chapter in that book. And Damn, it's- I didn't know they were yes. such a gamer. <laughs> I know. Jade Austen, just gaming. Oh my god. You know there's some fucking gamer Pride and Prejudice out there, right? Like, there's some kind of... I know there's a lot of... Maybe it's a t-shirt with a picture of one of the characters with a console. Oh, I thought you were saying... Because there are a lot of Shakespeare video games. I wouldn't be shocked to learn if there are Jane Austen video games. Um, Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's something like that. I... I'm just thinking about how, like, people are weird nerds about Jane Austen, and they love to cross Jane Austen over with their other weird nerd shit. I mean, I would argue Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies is already gamer shit. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even if there's not technically any video gaming in that novel, it is... Is for gamers. I forgot they, they made made a a movie? Or a movie. (laughs) They made a movie of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies? 
Oh yeah. I can't I believe the Austin State didn't sue. <laughs> like, yes, this is public think... domain, but fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> you're you're dragging our name through the mud. This is defamation. We're British, Wait, so Matt Smith is in this movie? Wait, Matt Smith is in this movie? Charles Dance is in this movie? <laughs> Lena Headey is in this movie? Damn, really is for gamers. Wow. Best based on the best selling novel by Jane Austen and Seth Graham Smith. Doctor Who is the most uh gamer television show, probably. I don't know. Of course Of course we are here to talk about Brandon Sanders. <laughs> who is a gamer, he, as we learned on the last episode of Export Audio. <laughs> He's a gamer, and he writes gamer novels. He does write know? gamer he novels. He literally writes game video game novels. He does. Yeah, like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not just talking about the tie-in novels, but also those yeah. are very <laughs> telling thing. So uh, what, are, what are our segments here? We have three chapters to talk about. Mm-hmm. Oh, are we going to maybe, like, do a thing where we check in about other stuff we've been reading? Because oh, yeah. I actually have read yeah. some stuff that yeah. I kind of want to That's what about. I was trying to set you up for. <laughs> Tell us about the things you've been reading, Tilly. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm still doing the thing that I talked about, I think, last time with, like, reading the solar cycle aloud. Uh, but that's basically the same as it was last time. That goes very slowly. Mm-hmm. And also, it's not like I would be telling you all about plot developments in the lot last book in a fucking like nine book series. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the other reading that I've done recently um, was that, so like, you know how in science fiction, a lot of times you have a character who is like uh, a clone or they were genetically engineered or something like that. And often they're like a super soldier, right? They've been enhanced somehow. Um, and their life is total shit because they were created as a tool and they got to deal with that somehow. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Gundam loves this trope. Mm-hmm. That's that's like what the cyber new type is. Wolverine. Um, Wolverine is this too. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can do this in fiction. I'm just um, galaxy just writing kinda... about Wolverine being a cyber new type. I know, that's X-23 an amazing concept. X-23 is a cyber new type. <laughs> oh, X-23 kind of is a cyber yeah. new type though. Like, yeah. X-23 is kind of like if you were like, hey, I like Wolverine, but what if he had more trauma and was a girl? Um. <laughs> that's what that's what I said about myself one time. And now, <laughs> now I'm a girl and I've got more trauma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess it's not even really, like, more trauma as, like, it is just, like, we acknowledged that the trauma existed and made mm-hmm. it part of the character rather than, like... Because, like, Wolverine does not most of the time act like what you think of, like, a traumatized character. But, like, obviously he's been through shit because he's a fucking X-Man. None of them have not been through He's shit. also, on top of being an X-Man, he's, like, an immortal. Right. Yes. So that's, like, right. bonus. He's been an X-Man for, like, a hundred years or some shit. I, he wasn't an X-Man before. I know. He became but an he's X- had, like... <laughs> and he has like a whole at some point he had like a whole fucking life that he didn't remember right yeah yes. some shit like that yes. yeah it's... anyhow so sorry you don't let me cut you off i was just gonna say that saber wolf st- killed his <sighs> wife <laughs> right god a dead wife that's the most important trauma a person can have actually wolverine has like four dead wives <laughs> god damn chris claremont is always on one um anyway yeah i so, right, so I'm thinking about, you know, cybernetypes, whatever, and I remembered, like, oh, hey, wasn't there one of those that I liked a lot when I was a teen? This guy called Mark Vorkosigan, uh, who, so this is one of the characters, one of the kind of, like, secondary protagonists um, from a series of books called the Vorkosigan Saga, 
Mm-hmm. Last time I brought up a cycle, and now it's a saga. Um, <laughs> and this is a this is a series of um, science fiction books uh, by an author named Lois McMaster Bujold, um, which are basically like if someone wrote Star Trek fan fiction, mm-hmm. but okay, compared to Star Trek, it is much more overt and unapologetic about its imperialism. Okay, and. And it is really interested in disability and biotechnology and, like, the social effects that, like, new forms of biotech have. Okay. So it's, it's, a, it's a cool series. I like it a lot. Um, there's definitely a lot of politics in there that are just fucking jaw-dropping. Um <laughs> But uh, the thing that I was going there for was this little, like, fucking uh, cloned assassin who, like, escapes the terrorists who made him and has to, like, decide what he's going to do with his life. And uh, I love that little freak. He's very (laughs) important to me. Um, The basic, like, premise of So I read two books. Um, One of them is called Brothers in Arms, and the other is called Mirror Dance. Um, And Mirror Dance was really the one that I was going there for brothers in arms was kind of the setup um and the the premise the reason that like this this mark kid exists as a clone uh is that the protagonist of like the first couple books um is this guy called miles Borkosigan, and he's uh he is a a nobleman in this like feudal society called barriar um where like Basically, Barriar was settled as a planet and then completely cut off from the rest of humanity and just kind of developed in isolation for a couple hundred years. And that's how they got a feudal system. Don't ask how they reverted to feudalism in a couple hundred years after having, like, space flight. I don't, I don't care. It's not important. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but so they, they did that. Uh, but then they made contact with galactic society again and there was a big war. Um, and so now it's like, okay, here's this kid, Miles. Um, he is the child of the guy who used to be the regent until the current emperor came of age. So he's very, like, close to the throne, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, because of a um, a terrorist attack on his mother when she was pregnant, um, he's basically, he is, like, he is disabled. Um, he's he's very short, and his bones are super brittle, uh, like they break really easily. So, um, he decides that he's going to push himself super hard and do a bunch of really foolhardy shit because he's that desperate to get into the military and prove himself. Because that's what you do if you're this kind of like feudal lord in the society. Mm-hmm. And he has his own fucking adventures. He creates a whole like. Uh, secondary existence as a mercenary admiral. Um, wild shit goes on with Miles Vorkosigan. Cool dude. I like him a lot. Uh, then, uh, the place where the guy that I care about comes in, though, Mark, is that um, some Komaran terrorists, Komar being Beriar's, like, big imperial holding, uh, the, the place that it, like, conquered when they... When Barriar was, like, uh, first made contact with the rest of the galaxy again, that was because someone else invaded them through Komar, and Barriar's immediate response was to invade right back and conquer Komar. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's fine. As far as the book is concerned, the Kamarans just need to get over it. Uh, <laughs> and integrate into the Empire and be normal. Just um, fucking be normal. Anyway, so so some Komaran terrorists are like, oh, we're gonna get back we're gonna strike back at the barrier and Imperium. We're gonna do this by cloning the son of the regent. And we're gonna raise mm-hmm. this co- this this guy in secret and and train him to be an assassin. And at some point, we're gonna swap him with Miles, and we're gonna have that dude like you know fucking infiltrate the Empire and assassinate the Emperor. And our mole will become the Emperor of Barriar, and then we'll own the Barriar and Empire, and it'll be our revenge. Um, and it's a it's a super stupid plan in a huge number of ways. <laughs> um, I don't see where this could possibly go wrong. <laughs> It's also, to be clear, it's not really, that's not really their plan. It it eventually becomes evident that, like, really what they want to do is throw the barrier and empire into chaos so that Komar can, like, revolt. They don't really want to, like, do a a coup and, like, seize power that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, so, so Brothers in Arms is about, basically, they try that plot and Miles foils it. And kind of over the course of foiling it, like, key to foiling it is Miles kind of trying to convince Mark, like, hey, you don't want to work for these terrorists. They're basically throwing you into a meat grinder and kind of planning for you to die. And they've been training you your entire life to be someone you're not. Like, why don't you go figure out who you are and what you want to do? Because, and like, this is really important to Miles because he's like a feudal lord. You're, technically speaking, my brother. And like... I I owe you that mm-hmm. sort of that freedom, right? Um, so the end of Brothers in Arms is that Mark shoots his terrorist dad, and love it. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great <laughs> when he shoots his terrorist dad. Um, and uh, and Miles is basically like, all right, Mark, here's a big blank check. Technically speaking, the government that I work for is hunting you because you were trained as a deep mole assassin to get at us. But I think you're a nice guy, so (laughs) why don't you just sort of see if you can evade the CIA that I work for, and I'll talk to you later. (laughs) And and Mark is like, okay. Um, And then uh, Mirror Dance picks up a few years later, and Mark is in, like, a phone booth. And he's whittled down that giant blank check to, like, he maybe has $100 left. And he's like, all right, this is fucking it. I'm going to do the thing that my life is about. Because, mm-hmm. like, Miles told me that I need to decide who I am and what I care about. And I figured it out. And uh, he's come up with a plan. Um, because, so, the Kamaran terrorists didn't actually raise their clone from birth. Um, there's a whole industry um on a planet called jackson's hole which is like a hyper capitalist hellscape um and on jackson's hole they have a <laughs> i know right it's also there's a real place in the real world called that um but <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot it's a fucking lot to deal with though <laughs> do i have to cut so, that? no no it's fine i don't think so that's fine so 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 they've got this illegal cloning business where, like, basically super rich people pay to have a clone of themselves grown. And um, because you can't just grow the clone in a vat, it, like, fucks up, like, your cardiovascular system doesn't grow properly if you're not, like, moving around. Um, so they are literally raising a child mm-hmm. uh, from birth. 
uh, for the purpose of when the body is like fully grown, which they can do as quickly as about 10 years, um, cutting open their skull and scooping their brain out and putting the rich person's brain in. Um, so it's like just horribly monstrous, right? These people okay. are literally ha- having children to kill them so they can extend their own lives. Um, and Mark basically grew up a bunch among a bunch of these clones, right? Because he was also a clone that someone paid to have grown. But instead of having his not brain scooped th- out, instead of having his brain scooped out when he was fourteen, some terrorists showed up and were like, "Okay, now we're going to indoctrinate you into hating Barriar." And he was like, "Okay." Um, but you know, he's like, "All right, what I want to do with my life is destroy the Jacksonian cloning business because it's fucking monstrous, right?" Mm-hmm. Um. And, uh, you know, his plan to do that goes horrifically awry, um, as you wouldn't be surprised it does, because it's the first thing that he tries in the first chapter of the book, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And he does manage to get out of there, like, having saved a bunch of, like, kids. He he, he, he airlifts a bunch of kids out of this evil lab. Uh, But in the course of the raid, lots of shit goes really wrong, including Miles shows up, to kind of try to bail him out, and Miles gets shot and, like, temporarily killed. Uh, because in this setting, you can cryo-revive people after um, life-threatening injuries, potentially. Okay. If, if you get them just as they've been killed, and you pump out all their blood and replace it with this weird, like, cryo-fluid, <laughs> and you get them into a cryo-thing. This is so much... Yeah, so... Anyway, I should probably not tell you any more about the plot of these books because I'll be going on forever. But the fucking point is, the whole story has this guy who, like, doesn't have an identity and doesn't have a family or, like, any understanding of who he's supposed to be beyond, like, well, I don't want to be a Kamaran terrorist anymore and I don't want to just turn into a copy of Miles. I guess I want to destroy this cloning business. That's, like, all he has. (laughs) And he has to figure out who he is and he ends up meeting his you know biological parents right like miles's parents who are extremely important political figures on barry are mm-hmm. like it's super weird because they're terrified for their son who is temporarily dead but also they have this new son and they they kind of see him as their son in some ways they kind of see him as a replacement also, they're feudal lords, so they're kind of like, well, our heir is dead, now we need another one. Um, and there's just a lot of really good emotional character work and thematic stuff about identity and family. And, like, there's a really compelling fantasy at the core of that book that is about being someone with, like, childhood trauma, but getting to have parents who you've never met before who aren't really responsible for your trauma and who understand you as a person um including like understanding the things about you that are kind of fucked up and gross right Mm -hmm. like um mark one one thing that's like established pretty as pretty clear canon about him uh is that at some point during mirror dance he develops like an eating disorder um Mm. he starts like gorging himself on food uh, with the kind of overt logical justification that like well if i can't fit into any of miles's clothes nobody can force me to pretend to be him right um oh but baby like, right right and it's like okay 
that's how like that's how like self-destructive coping mechanisms work in the real world right it's not just like uh i hate myself and so i will do something self-destructive it's like well i have a rationale for this Mm -hmm. and also there is a kind of pleasure in it that like there is something that is sort of soothing about this on a deep level as well as being like something you know you're kind of doing to hurt yourself right um and so uh like it's a very weird book for me to read now because the 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 psychology of it and, and the relationships in it are really sharp and insightful and the politics are such dog shit. <laughs> oh my god, it's so bad. Like, I, I, I want to tell you how the goal of destroying the evil cloning business is resolved. Um, but that is like big spoilers for the book. So if you're listening and you have any interest in the Vorkosigan saga, I would recommend that you skip ahead. Probably like... 30 seconds or a minute or something. Cause I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. what basically what Mark's happy ending is, um, which is that like at the end of all of this, there's like a conversation between him and miles where he's like, yeah, I still really want to destroy this cloning business. Even though I recognize that like trying to lead a commando raid on a lab wasn't the best thought out plan. And maybe I should try to do some things that are kind of different from that in the future. And miles is like, yeah, I mean, just going in and firebombing clone labs is never going to work. So it's like you already start there and I'm kind of like, mm, mm. I don't know. I mean, it would stop the cloning business. I feel like maybe you do need some of that. Like like yes, I agree that Mark's plan was kind of half-cocked and just getting for example one cloning lab when there are probably hundreds of them on this planet um not not really good enough. Uh But the conclusion that Mark comes to, he's like, yeah, you know, the solution to this really has to be technological. People aren't going to stop doing this thing until there's a more effective and, like, less risky and, like, more profitable form of life extension. Mm -hmm. So I just need to make a way for these disgusting hyper-rich people Mm -hmm. whom I hate to extend their lives differently. And that will solve the problem of how they are willing to destroy human life to extend their own. And I'm just like, no! Like, honey, please have some solidarity! <laughs> it's it's so sad. Um, absolutely, he becomes like a fucking like, business genius and shit, and it's like, oh my god. We just need to disrupt oil. <laughs> really fucking is that yes and it's like you know what do you expect from someone who's a huge star trek fan writing in 1995 (laughs) right Mm -hmm. um but also but also yeah fuck i want this person to be a communist (laughs) yeah do better she's like my god lois wigmaster bujold is not a fucking communist and and is not gonna be Mm -hmm. um she uh, in the course of reconnecting with these books that I loved in my teenage years, I've also, like, done a little bit of just kind of looking up stuff about this author and, like, her books. And I learned that she strenuously denies the quote-unquote persistent rumor that her first ever book is obviously Star Trek fan fiction about, like, a Starfleet officer and a Klingon being trapped on a planet together and falling in love. 
with like the serial numbers filed off. Mm-hmm. Um, which it like really transparently is. And that's good. Like it's fucking good at that. It's good shit. Mm-hmm. It's a good idea to have like two people on like opposing sides of a galactic cold war, like trapped on a fucking planet. And there's only one bed. together. <laughs> yeah, and there's only one bed and like Let me tell you the- about the Rebels episode where Callus and Zeb get stuck on an ice planet and they only have one heater. Yes, it's exactly <laughs> like that. And it's like, oh man, this kind of like stuffy, you know, uh, survey officer from Beta Colony who like has all these side- sort of progressive ideals, but who feels a kind of lack of meaning in her life. She's really attracted to this gruff, masculine imperialist <laughs> when you said that my mind just filled in the blanks with the protagonist from the order 1886 <laughs> uh, so yeah like the the combination of like really good character writing and like understanding of what is like appealing about a character uh with just like the worst politics is, like, baked in from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I do think that a lot of people who like Brandon Sanderson books would probably enjoy Lois McMaster Bujold books. Um, I do notice I they've got- uh, the first Vorkoskin saga book is called Shards of Honor, and I had a moment <laughs> of, like, oh? Shards of Honor? <laughs> it is called that, yeah. I mean, it's not really... That's the that's the one where they're trapped on a planet. It. The honor is like Klingon honor. It's not, yeah. it's kind of, it's doing kind of a different thing, I think, than um, an honor blade or whatever, but uh, but it's not doing a totally different thing. <laughs> if you like it, if you like it when like a fucking knight swears his fealty to his lord. Mm-hmm. Um, Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, frankly. Um, then like, yeah, I think uh, these are, these are, these are good books in a lot of ways. Um, she also has written some other stuff that is like fantasy, some of which uh, I, I've, I've liked a lot of her other work. I'm just now thinking about um, this one piece of work that she wrote, which is very clearly supposed to be in like a fantasy frontier America. And I don't know what the politics of that are. I think they're probably. also probably pretty dog shit, you know? Probably. <laughs> Um, but, you know, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's fun stuff. Uh, and it's also, like, the reason that I liked this stuff so much as a teen is because it really gets mental. Mm-hmm. Like, it's cartoonish, right? It's not, like, realistic in the sense that, um, it's not psychologically realistic in the sense that Austin is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, it's not just, like, it's not just, like, the the way that, like, say, Wolverine is very often written, <laughs> right? Where he's, like, a sad dude who has some trauma and that just kind of makes him tougher all the time. It's like, oh, we see these characters having panic attacks. We see them, like, having fucking, like, problems in their lives because of this stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Um uh, and also some of them actually go to therapy, although it's it's not, it's kind of the coward idea of going to therapy that I think a lot of, like, fandom has for, like, its, its sad characters, 
where it's like, oh, I want this person to go to therapy, but they don't really, there's no concept of being in therapy as like itself being a plot, right? Like a, mm-hmm. a, a place where you are having conflicts and like doing things that don't have predetermined outcomes. It's more just sort of like apply therapy to wound. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I have I have considerably less to say about books I've been reading this week, just because I'm two chapters into Legend of the Galactic Heroes. That book is the f- the first book of those um, out of ten, so I'm in for something long. I'm five chapters into Pride and Prejudice, um, and I have some. Thoughts. Are the zombies there yet? No, no zombies. <laughs> I have. I I had an interesting thought about the way that Austin writes um, that is probably pretty boring to anyone who knows Jane Austen, but I don't I didn't know anything about her going in, which is just that like there are no spaces in that bo- in that book like it's just a ball and then you get characters talking and you get like characters thinking things, but you don't like she never is like and, and Lizzie was wearing this gown that had like such and such. She doesn't describe anything. It's just character thoughts and character feelings, which is kind of interesting. But I'm five chapters in, so I don't really have any thoughts. And I'm two chapters into Moby Dick. Uh, no, I'm one Damn, chapter. Why are you into- reading that? <laughs> it seems like a book for weirdos. <laughs> now that's definitely true. Um, I mean, it was it was seemingly written by a weirdo. Oh. <laughs> Listen, that's for that debate. <laughs> that's why, because I started listening to Higgledy Piggledy Well Statements on the Abnormal Mapping Network. Um, I, and um, I got, I, I was listening to the first episode on my drive to work, and I was like, oh, this sounds kind of weird. I guess I'll pick at it. I always, I had always had this impression of like, it is the great American novel. It is a very serious and uh, stoic affair. But it just sounds kind of odd, and hmm. it reminds me of that new um, Beowulf translation. That, mm-hmm. uh, I thought I bought, but I guess I never did. Um, just this. Just steal it. <laughs> Academics don't deserve your money. <laughs> also, it doesn't go to them anyway. I just so. want to hold it. Is the is the main thing? Um, oh, that's fair. But it's like a, a thing that I hadn't thought about with regards to Beowulf is this idea of like. Yeah, it's old. Doesn't mean it's grim and serious. Mm-hmm. It's it's probably yeah. it's probably okay for the great hero Beowulf to say, "Bro, they'll fuck you up." <laughs> like yeah. that's probably I mean, the fine. Thing is, the thing is, Beowulf is really grim and serious in the sense that, like, it's about like fucking what happens when you die and like mm-hmm. what comes after you and stuff like that. But it's not grim and serious in the sense that like there's no humor in it. Or there's no, like, drama in it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, or that, like, there's absolutely parts of Beowulf that are the, the like, old English poetic equivalent of the battle rages, you know? Where it's just like, oh my god, like, blood and guts are flying everywhere and, like, ho- awesome moves are happening, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Beowulf is using his super. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Like, I really, yeah, like. Did either of you see that CGI Beowulf movie? I have yeah. seen... So, my senior year high school English class, we read one or two chapters where he goes and fights the Grendel, and then we watched, like... The Grendel? <laughs> I think that's what it's called, right? That's his name. 
There definitely are oh. I think, like versions where it's the Grendel. I don't think that's like wrong. So he goes and he goes and fights the big monster uh-huh, that right. the book is famous yeah. for, and um, we watched I think thirty minutes of that of that movie. Um, I think the teacher ended up putting on Polar Express at some point. Wow! <laughs> Isn't wait a minute? It's the Isn't same this... animation techniques yeah, and whatever. Yeah. Doesn't the CGI? Doesn't the CGI Beowulf have a nude, hot Angelina Jolie? Yeah, but no nips. We, so it's fine. <laughs> we did see hot, oh. nude Angelina Jolie CGI in, in my she, high school English class. But she has like molten gold all over her body, so it's oh it's, my god. It's, so that's less horny. Yeah. Um. Just like Cortana is less horny because she's blue. <laughs> I don't remember if in real quote unquote real Beowulf if he fucks Grendel's mom. I, I'm pretty sure that they don't. I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I read it, but I don't think that that's happens. what the CGI movie is about. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> to go briefly back to Beowulf, or to go briefly back to Moby Dick, I realized the thing that I had always assumed it was was like Hemingway and like the very just like mm. stern way that he writes Heming uh, that Hemingway writes, um, which I don't care for even a bit. Um, it was kind of like one of the classics of like American masculinity, right? Right, and that's what I thought that Moby Dick was, but nah, nah, it's just a weird no, little Mo- book. <laughs> Moby Dick is honestly Moby Dick. Moby Dick has podcast energy, I think, because it's all about like a weird dude just kind of talking to you about the things that are on his mind, and if he happens to have a little like mental tangent where he's just kind of thinking about some particular concept for a while he'll just make that a chapter Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. um like it is it is not a tight book at all you know uh i feel like that's one of the defining qualities of hemingway like i I don't like hemingway a lot either but like when people are praising hemingway they're like oh there's no words wasted yeah right yeah that's not moby dick (laughs) yeah uh i read a book I'm still working my way through Gundam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why. Oh, right. I remember what you read. Sorry. I, I'm still working my way through Gundam. This is a poorly written book. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, you know, Gundam's a really well animated show. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that I'm in the third chapter and I'm like 75 pages in because these these chapters are so fucking long and they're mm-hmm. they have a weird meandering energy to them just like gundam the television show has a weird meandering energy to it that's true it does have that uh it feels so loose and like haphazard all the time maybe because brandon is so structured and i'm used to that right now mm-hmm um, mm-hmm. It just it just switches around a lot more, and it just you know Ryu Jose said a word he'd heard recently. Maybe that guy's a new type. End of scene. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Not gonna talk about that. We're just gonna point out that oh, he's gonna use a word he just he just recently learned. 
Let me tell you about and <laughs> Gundam the, the television show. And sometimes it'll describe reactions to things before the thing happens. Like it'll say, <laughs> at Char's next words, the commander's face went white. And then it shows has Char's dialogue after that. <laughs> that's such a... God, that's... Because exa- that works in an animated TV show, you know? You can have someone going like... <laughs> And then have a thing happen in an animation, mm-hmm. I think. Like, yeah. that works a lot better. It's just weird, and um, I just finished reading Skyward by Brandon Sanderson, and I think I think Brandon has a more engaging way of writing aerial space fights than this Gundam book has. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, um, Skyward is really weird. It's really fucking weird. <laughs> you told me the ending of it, which we shouldn't say on this podcast, but I was like, okay, I didn't have much interest in this book until you told me the ending, which is fucking bananas. <laughs> it's it's pretty wild. Uh, it has a cool thing with the ships where, like, the ships have a ring on the underside that lets them hover, um, and what that means is they can rotate their ship on the ring, so the way they stop is that they just flip their ship around and fire their boosters in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And then when they nice. when they want to rocket straight up, the ring has a hinge, so it like unfolds to point their nose up so that they can shoot up. You know what? I feel like I don't mean to dis Tomino's interest in space battle. Clearly he is interested in it because he keeps fucking writing it. Mm-hmm. But on a Gundam show... It is actually other people's jobs to think really hard about the technology in this setting, like specifically how the mobile suits work, mm-hmm. how they locomote, how their weapons function, right? People who aren't Tomino do that stuff for mm-hmm. Gundam. That makes Whereas sense. Whereas Brandon is the one to write all that stuff for his books. Mm-hmm. Right. You know? And so he, he has to like drill into you, like, here's how all this shit works. Uh, you know, y- yes, you can bank... Like, a, like an airplane, or you can just turn in midair and go, uh, because, like, that's how space works, I mm-hmm. guess. Right. Uh, and, you know, there's G-forces and stuff, but you can, you have, here's a, here's a handy device that uh, dampens G-forces for exactly three seconds. So for a sharp, like, sharp turn like that, you're fine, but if you, like, really push it, you're gonna only have three seconds of safety before the, the force starts to crush you, or, or like make you black out or whatever the situation is um it's a lot of interesting stuff uh i don't i feel like sanderson might have known that he was writing a ya book in a way that he didn't know when writing like mistborn yeah um, and I think that no knowing going in what he was doing made his writing worse. Mm. I, I I think I asked you maybe on the podcast when you previously talked about this book, like what does Brandon want to teach the children? Um, <laughs> um, and I, I, I assume you have to talk about the ending to really say that, so I don't necessarily want to press yeah. you. I came it, up with a funny way to summarize it in one sentence. I also we've been did talking. That. Okay, you go, and then I'll go. Brandon read part of the wiki page for Foucault. Okay, I was going to say the same <laughs> thing that Brandon moved on from reading Das Kapital to uh, Brandon's now reading Discipline and Punish. 
God. <laughs> the thing is, like, because I really do feel that, like, Brandon Sanderson's books already are kind of didactic in the sense that, like, they have a worldview about what's bad and what's good, mm-hmm. and they communicate it pretty clearly, right? Um, so the idea that he's going into a book with that concept even more present in his mind, right? And and I'm sure there are people who, when they go to write a YA book, aren't really thinking about it that way, but I don't think that's Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so I'm, I'm imagining the concept of, like, a Brandon Sanderson book that is really trying to be didactic, and that sounds not very good. It's very interesting. Um, he wants to talk about authoritarianism and where it comes from. Now, what is authoritarianism? What does that word mean? <laughs> because a lot of people like to use that word to cover umbrellas of things that are very different. Well, in this case, it's a society completely controlled by the military. Mm-hmm. Um, because they're stuck on this planet. As far as I know, as far as they know, this is humanity. They were on a ship. Their ship crashed uh, 70 years ago, 80 years ago. This planet is covered in debris. In the in the orbit is just full, so full of debris that you can't see the stars. And there's like mm-hmm. dozens of layers of ancient space junk protecting the planet, like a huge shell. And also, there's guns in there that are still automated that shoot down anyone approaching. That's why they, their ship crashed. Um, but they're stuck there, and now they've they've come together to fight off the aliens that chased them there, the Krell. And mm-hmm. they have their city now. They have the cavern. They have the the machine. The what is it called? The device. The something. Some some word like that. The apparatus that creates starships for them. Um, and they have their base on the surface. And basically, all of their society is under the Defiance. Like, the the Defiant was the ship that crashed. The main ship that crashed. So they are the Defiance. And the Defiance Defense League is the military force that runs society. And they are like an air force because... Every now and then, the Krell ships come down through the surface whenever an opening shows up or whenever there's a debris fall, uh, and they try to attack the humans. And so we're stuck in this place behind our big walls, and there are enemies constantly attacking us, and we have to fend them off. And so we've developed a sort of society geared toward being able to do that. I see. I see. Interesting. I feel like it's so frustrating when, like, it's frustrating to me when a work wants to do something like that, where it kind of wants to talk about, like, you know, this fascist idea that, like, our our nation is constantly under threat from foreign invaders, and that's why we have to do all of this militaristic shit. Um... Obviously, he's talking about that in this, mm-hmm. but it does sound like if you try to leave the planet, you do get shot down, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not like yeah. the foreign invaders... It's not like, for example, the thing that he has done explicitly with Prathen in Elantris, where, like, the current 
day Elantrians are no threat to Hraithen because they're all fucking dying. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, suffering. They can't die. But, like, uh, in this book, he, he is even, like, over the top with how much the fascist, like, knows that his scapegoat group is not a real threat. But it sounds like, I mean, I'm sure there's an element in what you've just described where, like, maybe the aliens aren't real. Maybe they're not really trying to attack. Whatever. Yeah, I definitely had a lot of, like, ideas about what the twist was going to be when I started, because it is, like, it is a YA book, so there's a lot of things that are just said directly to you. Um, Yeah. I wasn't really, I didn't, all of my guesses were wrong, is what I'll say. (laughs) Um, And there is, like, a moment where a character is talking to the main protagonist, and she's like, no, I understand. You've been inundated with all this, you know, propaganda all your life. You can't help being this, like, tightly wound ball of aggression and bloodthirst. I like, I, I understand where you're coming from, but um, it, it is also a story that is about, I obviously, I guess not obviously, but, like, in a sort of typical way, it is sort of a coming-of-age story, or more specifically a... A story, a story about uh, uh, constructing, like the construction of your selfhood, and mm-hmm. how as you come into the world, the preconceived notions that you have will be challenged or crushed by the world around you, and how you like rebuild after that, and what you be- choose to make yourself into. After, like, Damn. having uh, concepts that you held very closely challenged or completely dismissed. I mean, I do love that shit. That is kind <laughs> of exactly what I was talking about in my book that I liked. So, uh, yeah. Maybe I will read this. There's a, there's a lot about, like, constructing the self and reckoning with that. Uh, and part of that is that um, the way that this book was put pitched to me was what if aragon was a spaceship uh, um <laughs> okay that's not quite what it is <laughs> that's a very good reaction <laughs> i mean i i never read aragon mm-hmm. uh so i don't have like any deep thoughts about what that would mean basically um, find a thing that you can fly in and then have like a bond with it but it's not quite one-to-one but she sure, does sure. find a ship that has an ai in it um, and so that also plays into this these themes of identity, uh, because the AI obviously perceives of itself and identity in a different way than the main the character. Human kid, yeah. Uh, and also, eventually, there's some like, oh, Brandon, you and your fucking little mysteries. <laughs> you and your like, I real I found out on the wiki. That this is the same setting as another like short story he had written, and he has a name for the the universe that it takes place in, which is the Cytoverse. Naturally. Uh huh. So there's there's such a thing as Cytonics, which is a sort of I think it I think the wiki just calls it a magic system. <laughs> I mean, look, my, science fiction and fantasy are the same shit. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they absolutely are. It's, it is the same thing whether you are, like, pointing a blaster at someone and they fall over dead, or if you are, like, doing arcane gestures at them and they fall over dead, you know? 
I mean, pulling a trigger is kind of an arcane gesture, too. Makes you think. Yeah. I Like, I don't... I feel the need to walk this back ever so slightly and say that, like, um, you know, genre... Like, the concept of, like, a science fiction... There are things you can point to and be like, okay, this is science fiction and not fantasy. Because, like, it's trying to be science fiction. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's doing spaceships and not wands or whatever. Um, but I don't think that there is, like, a theoretical distinction so much as there is, like, a, a cultural distinction. Right. You know? um, and, and, like, there is a tendency for certain themes to be more accepted in one than the other yes that's definitely true yeah and like there are are all kinds of like associations i mean this is part of why you can have something that is kind of like technically speaking science fiction like i think i I think uh, um people often call the solar cycle science fantasy because pretty much all of the stuff that happens in that story that doesn't that is impossible in the real world like breaks down ultimately to something that has some kind of material explanation right Mm -hmm. um so like you know um there are there's lots of ancient technology that still works that the people in the setting experience as being basically magical but that like we as readers understand okay this isn't just an ancient tower this was once a rocket ship and that's why it's shaped like that and has those kinds of rooms inside of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of stuff like that where like you could maybe argue that those books are ultimately science fiction, that they don't really have anything supernatural in them. But also like that's kind of missing the point because if it's evoking the aesthetic of fantasy so much, then like it's clearly doing something with fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, Jackson asked, is this book good last night? And I was like, well, I don't know. And then I deleted like three responses. <laughs> that's a really, look, I was, I'm not saying that Jackson was like out of line to ask that question, but that's a really hard question to answer. No, like, yeah. Even Jackson like different things. <laughs> but like, uh, eventually what I came down on was that I enjoyed reading it and I think it's playing with some interesting stuff. Uh, I think that it's uncharacteristically like the writing is weird. And this is what my first point was about knowing that he's writing YA is that sometimes it's a little mm-hmm. scattershot about like, are you writing this for children or for teens or for everyone? Because mm-hmm. instead of being a YA in the sense that, Oh, this whole thing, every part of this thing is just sort of approachable from many different perspectives some of it is like approachable and then some of it is like specifically focused on or explained or said bluntly or or un uncritically no like like there's some things some like idioms and some writing choices that feel maladroit in a way that Sanderson doesn't usually do. Um, And it was just kind of weird. It's definitely feels different from a lot of his other writing. Um, I I definitely think it's interesting that 
Because, like, we've been talking about things that are kind of frustrating about and, like, feel a little bit inartful about Elantris. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like the kinds of, the ways that Skyward is not, like, sort of fully living up to your expectations of Brandon are pretty different. Yeah. Um, which suggests to me that you're right, that it has to do with him, like, having a different mindset when he's setting down to write that book. I really think that's the main thing. Um, I know that originally this was planned to be a Cosmere entry, but then he decided that for the story to really work, he needed to reference Earth, which doesn't exist in Cosmere. So he decided to change it to its own thing. And that's mm-hmm. a that's an interesting thing to think about, uh, just in terms of like, this is the second thing I've written, I've, I've read by... Brandon that isn't Cosmere the first being his little novella Perfect State um that's a title yeah the perfect state <laughs> I I love when the state is perfect uh, it's great <laughs> um but anyway I don't want to drone to drone on so much without actually talking about what happens in the book but if at any point it was starting to lose me, it still got carried by typical things I like about Brandon's writing, i.e. like character work is very fun to to watch in this one. Um, mm-hmm. The way that he writes certain characters in, like bouncing off each other and the just the most like broadcasted, signs like neon signs pointing at these two characters slow burn uh starting slow burn watch these two who hate each other don't they hate each other so much oh really look how perfect Mm. this fucking this fucking like noble guy is and he's he's got such an obnoxiously perfect hair and such a strong jawline and he's so like so much better than everyone else god i mean you know that's good shit um, we love to see it yeah elantris elantris i'd love to talk about elantris so we've got three chapters we do yeah. luckily do we wanna hmm. you go go ahead all right so i was just about to ask do we want to like split up doing the chapters in the same way that we have before. We've kind of fallen, but we've only had it for two episodes, mm-hmm. so we could always break it. But yeah, I, um, I I think I can kind of speedrun talking about Rayadin's chapter <laughs> this week, so I would love <laughs> to do Rayadin's chapter. Okay, I also um, kind of really want to sink my teeth into everything that's going on with Serini's chapter, so... It is the longest chapter this week, so there there's going to be a lot. But, but yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not going to monopolize am, it. Of course, we're all going to talk about it. To be clear, but. right, right. But there, there's a lot in the Serenian chapter. I'm going to speed run the raid in chapter. I guess real I'll quick. stick with my boy Hraithen. Yeah, <laughs> listen, um, he's the real protagonist, <laughs> <laughs> and so, he looks like Nicolas Cage. I can't stop thinking about this cover. Where he's just vampire Nicolas Cage. Raiden is still in exposition jail. Um, <laughs> uh, you can't just steal my joke. <laughs> yes, I just stole your joke. Galadon is like, here is Aeon Door. We think Aeon Door isn't working because we can draw the little... We Elantrians can draw the little symbols in the air, but they don't work. And Raiden is like, wow, it seems like all of these things are linked. And the reader is like, yeah, fucking duh, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and they're like, what if we read all these books that are in here? And um, uh, they agree to read all the books, and then they go outside uh, to, like, go about their day a little bit. And um, outside, Galadon is, like, doing a little more exposition, and... Raiden starts to formulate a plan about how they can, like, improve their circumstances here in Elantris, and Caledon asks him, what are you going to do? And Raiden triumphantly announces, I'm going to wait. And I, <laughs> Autumn, had to set the book down and walk around the apartment because I was furious. It's a page 100, Brandon. No plots happened. Anyway... <laughs> Um, someone new shows up to Elantris, and the Sheor people are about to beat the hell out of him, but Raiden and Galadon, like, grab him and, like, bolt and, like, get away, um, and they've recruited a new member of the party who's gonna make them shoes. And also, they climb some stairs, and they huddle together at the top of what used to be a tower, or, like, a building. They knock out the stairs behind them, but the... Uh, other guy, that mob is still down there, and they're not leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So they're and literally. I mean, that's a little bit of plot. They're kind of trapped. Yeah. That's it. That's the only bit of plot that happens is the last is the last little bit where Galadin and Raiden run off with this new person whose name I've forgotten, who was a jeweler outside, and um, they're kind of like bullying him into being useful. They want to do some primitive accumulation. Um, and uh, bully him into starting to make shoes, which they can use, like sell as com- uh, commodities. I assume is the plan. I, I, I assume imagine, they're. I'd imagine since there doesn't seem to be any actual like money inside of Elantris, that their plan is a little bit more like, I'm gonna offer shoes to people who will follow me. You know, mm-hmm. um, Marishi. Marishi. Yeah, that's his name. But obviously, yeah, this is like a shoes scheme. Mm-hmm. A shoe scheme. <laughs> yeah. So we get, yeah, we get more of Raiden as, like, you know, the the thing that I remembered about Raiden in this chapter is that, like, he was not always the crown prince of Erlon. Mm, yeah. Um, He grew up as just a merchant, and then his father seized power ten years ago. Um, and so he uh, has the... His father has probably taught him, or he has seen a lot of ways to be crafty, and that's what we're getting here, is, like, Raiden is being crafty. He's like, oh, I will I will do merchant shit to outwit the um, the three gangs, and that's how I will establish myself here in Elantris. Um, yeah. Well, one thing um, that you didn't mention that I do think is, is important to establish um, is that the, the like... Uh, the, the cliffhanger that we left off with with the last Raiden chapter, right, where Galadon, like, drew an Aeon in the air and was like, yeah, what do you think about that? Uh, <laughs> is a huge letdown because the Aeons don't fucking do anything. Like, they, yep. can, they, can, they can draw them because they're Elantrians now, and, like, if they... They need to draw them correctly to make them even, like, glow at all, like, to, to like, fully exist. And then once you do that, it just, like, glows in the air for a few seconds and then disappears. So yeah, it's like, oh, damn, like this used to be a whole system that you could use to do awesome stuff just by drawing things. But now it doesn't work. And it's... Elantris is a city that is not fit for habitation by non-Elantrians because all of their technology functions based on Aeon Door, 
Mm-hmm. Like the lights in the buildings all have these panels with the symbols in them. So there's no gas in the city. There's no water in the city other than the one well. There's no, like, there's there's not a lot of like basic human needs because with Aeondor you could, I assume, just conjure up you know water and food and um, light. Yeah, you know I'm starting to think. I have like a, a concept that that is just coming to my mind right now because of what we're talking about. Um, so like everything in Elantris is like crumbling, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessarily literally the case that like the very stones of Elantris were held together by the power of Aeon Dor. Um, but I do wonder if maybe there's an implication here that like uh, Aeon Dor like drains like vital energy from its surroundings. And like the Elantrians mm-hmm. had been doing that for thousands of years and it finally broke. And that's also, why all this happened. I also wonder, it mentions that everything is degrading so fast. I wonder if part of it was that the gleaming city of Elantris was partially an illusion mm. u- using Aeon Dor, And now that that power is gone, like the facade is starting to peel off. That or if you con- if you built a building out of stones that you conjured, like, are those stones ten years later just, like, not, you know... Are they inferior to... Yeah, real yeah. stone, quote-unquote. And this does, you know, I, I think, like, one thing that we hear about, and we'll hear more about it in the next chapter, is how, like, the Elantrians were constantly giving shit away, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it does kind of make me think about that, that myth, or not myth, I don't know, just that, like narrative idea of like fairy gold right where it's Mm -hmm. like oh there are these generous otherworldly beings that will give you stuff but it's a trick and it will all fade away by morning um and like obviously a lot of the things that elantrians gave people weren't tricks like i think rayadin remembers having Mm -hmm. his leg healed when he was a kid by an elantrian um and like his leg works fine now that didn't go away but um and also it didn't it didn't undo itself after the the collapse of Elantris. Yeah. Yeah, it's not like his leg rebroke. Yes. But but if not on a literal level, I think maybe on a thematic level, there's a sense that like what the Elantrians offered people was illusory in some way. Yeah, you know, it's just unsustainable when you have commodities being given away to people who need them without profit motive. It's just, you know, yeah, it's when just you, not sustainable. <laughs> when you have, like, infinite magical power, the worst thing you could do is just, like, use it to provide for people's needs. And God forbid your servants be pampered. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, also, it's, it's wild to think that there were so many servants living in this city when they don't have lamps. Oh, my God. Or... Okay, look. The class structure of Elantris before the fall. Do we do we want to get into that? Because we, we will get there in just a minute uh, <laughs> when we get to the Serini chapter. Because we should just take that in its full context. We should just get all of that at one time. I might read a block quote. But yeah, yeah. Before before we move on, I also want to touch on um, these three chapters are taking place more or less concurrently. We see at the end of this chapter. Um, uh, Raiden like looks out into um K Kai still don't know how to say that word um um 
looks out into the city and is like, oh, there's a Giorn preaching. When did a Giorn get to Elon or get to the city? Like, when did a Giorn show up in Erlon? Um, and so, and then in the next chapter, we see Serini's version of that scene, and obviously that's Hraithan talking, so... Yeah. Yeah, like these three chapters are all taking place more or less concurrently, or this chapter and the next one. Yeah, that's right. Um, Serini? I intend to wait. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. I want want a plot to happen. (laughs) I mean, I think there's... I think that there are plot events in each of these three chapters... But there's still a lot of exposition, and it's still going very slowly. We um, are on page 100, and I don't know, like, I just feel like Rayadin should have met some antagonistic force in the antagonistic I mean, character, because he's yeah. met, like, gangs of people who are not characters. Yeah, Rayadin you know? needs to, like, have a meeting with these gang leaders. I mean, obviously he's going to set himself up for something like that, and I get why he doesn't want to do that immediately, because he wants to gather a power base first, but, like... You totally could have had, like, at this point, I think the gang leaders probably know that he exists. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying they know what he's doing, but they've probably noticed that he's, like, already kind of made some trouble, you know? So it wouldn't be un- implausible for some tough to swing by and be like, hey, my boss wants to talk to you, right? Like, right. That could have happened, but no. Or one of the bosses I mean, could have been there the first day. Sorry, you go. I mean, we're only three chapters in. Mm-hmm. To his that's story. true but yeah i mean like, if that's if the case was... like you can't actually i think grade it on a curve like that because we're not three chapters in we are seven chapters in you know like mm. it's... but that i think part of it is also maybe we're expecting too much from rayadin since he's the first character we meet when clearly all this stuff is happening with sereni and Rayden. yeah i don't think that i don't think rayadin is going to get out of exposition jail until act two i mean i think you're right but i think that if that's true then making him a full third of the book was a bad idea or a full well, third he of has the book to get his early. exposition to us <laughs> <laughs> we have to know about aeon door and the cl- the cl- oh, we the... don't know anything about aeon door <laughs> We'll get there. That's because nobody knows about Andor. But we have to know that nobody knows about Andor. What if this was a longer book and we had a first act that was Rayadin going to meetings with his friends and talking about the state of the world and Sereni on a voyage, like talking to Rayadin and her dad and uh, Hraithan, like on his way to the city and like, or even like in the aftermath of the Duladel rebellion oh, yeah. revolt what if that was all all that backstory was the first act and this was like a thousand page book and and you then just we want had to like... read way of kings again <laughs> <laughs> we'd be reading this book for a year but you'd feel better about it maybe yeah let's let's chug along to sereni i think okay so so sereni um she's decided that she's going to she's gonna stay living in the palace even though like her uncle has offered that he she could move in with him, um, which would obviously be kind of appealing. Uh, but she she figures, like, if she's going to be doing all of this troublemaking at court, it's going to be easier if she's stationed in the palace. Um, and uh, the way she decides to make trouble today um, is that she sets up an easel in the throne room and, like, paints 
copies, well, she claims that what she's doing is painting copies of the art, but she's really bad at art, guys. Isn't that cute? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the king is, like, very annoyed by her, but she just, like, plays bimbo again. And um, <laughs> so uh, he's like, don't do it in the, if, if you have to paint paintings, don't do it in the middle of my throne room. And she's like, okay, I'll go to the side of the throne room. Um, and he just doesn't want to have to, you know, go through a whole, like, who's on first routine with her to get her to leave. So he just, like, lets her be there. Um, and, uh, you know, Serene and Ash kind of diss Eodon some more about how he's kind of stupid and just, like, doesn't seem like he's actually going to be able to successfully hold on to power for very long. Um, and also... Ash owns Serene for her lack of artistic ability a bunch. Um, and uh, then... Uh, she has lots of other talents. Oh, yeah, she for is, sure. She's um, adept at politics, an unquestionable le- leader, and can even grasp Jindo mathematics with ease. That's that's true. It does say that. We don't what know the what fuck the are... fuck those are, but I guess Serene knows them. <laughs> I I assume that's just a fantasy word for calculus, like like, like math. <laughs> yeah, no, I assume it. Yeah, it's just like hard math or whatever. But like, it is kind of funny that it's like, oh, the the hardest math is uh, foreign. Um, like, mm-hmm. I, I I don't know. There's just a weird vibe there that I don't really feel like the need to pick apart totally. But um, uh-huh. so then uh. There's a dispute at court that um, Serene witnesses where, okay, I'm going to just try to describe this legal dispute as it's presented in the book as mm-hmm. kind of straightforwardly as possible. Uh, so there's there's two nobles who come into the court with a peasant. Um, and about three years ago, he escaped from one of the nobles and the other one captured him and like put him to work. Uh, and in that time, this peasant guy has gotten married and had some kids. And now both nobles are claiming, quote, ownership of the babies. Um, and, you know, in exactly the same way that I think you are supposed to when you read that line, Serini is like, damn, that's pretty sus. I thought slavery was illegal. Uh, mm. And then Lukel kind of conveniently steps out of the shadows to be like, Ah, well, you see, it's more complicated than that. (laughs) He really does just announce, I'm in this scene now. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it's it's kind of an interesting interaction because uh, he's, he's, I feel like throughout this conversation, he is both flirting with Serene and also constantly calling her cousin. Um, So that's a, that's a, that's a thing. Um, Can you hand me the book, Nora? I've. We're at the part that I want to block quote, maybe, but I'll let you talk for a little bit more, Centilli, yeah. while I find it. So the the substance of uh, Lukel and Serini's discussion about this, you know, court case is basically like, well, Lukel explains, like, yes, sort of technically speaking, slavery where one person, like, fully owns another human being is not legal in this country. But um, that's not like exactly what the situation is like basically he, i mean he explains it by analogy to other things so it's a little hard to understand exactly what we're being told but i believe what the what we're try what we're meant to understand here is that this is a system like you know feudal peasantry or serfdom where 
peasants are are legally bound to the land that they work and so uh, because a noble owns the land in some sense they also own the people who live on and work that land and that's why there can be a legal dispute about this guy who escaped from the lands of one noble into the lands of another like does he go does the law say he has to go back to the first one and like where do his children go in that case um that's the thing that's that's what's happening yeah i will i will read because this is the most interesting um part of this and there's a lot here to pick apart um lukel frowned slavery is illegal but it probably won't be for long 10 years ago there weren't any nobles or peasants in erilon just elantrians and everyone else over the past decade commoners have changed from families that owned their own land to peasants beneath feudal lords to indentured servants to something more resembling ancient fjordel serfs we will circle back to what those are (laughs) It won't be much longer before they're nothing more than property. Sereni frowned. The mere fact that the king would hear such a case as this uh, was atrocious. Society was supposed to have progressed beyond that point. This is worse than I had feared, she said. Lukel nodded at her side. The first thing Iadon did when he took the throne was eliminate individual landholding rights. Erelon had no army to speak of, but Iadon could afford to hire mercenaries, forcing them into forcing the people into compliance. He declared that all land belonged to the crown, and then he rewarded those merchants who had supported his ascension with titles and holdings. Only a few men, such as my father, had enough land and money that Iodon didn't dare try to take their property. (laughs) Serini felt her disgusted for her new father rise. (laughs) So... Brandon. He seizes the land and makes everyone serfs. It's so fucking wild. Like, the idea that up until ten years ago, everybody, everybody in Kai was a fucking landowner? Are you kidding yeah. me? Commoners, commoners owned land. Like, what like. he's basically saying is that... Because, like, okay, here's the fucking thing. Like... I am not trying to say that, like, uh, a situation where all the land is parceled out and owned by various different farming families is, like, a true situation of, like, collective ownership, right? Um, But that's because when that exists, it's not actually the case. Like, when people talk about family farms in the U.S., right, those are not Mm -hmm. fucking family farms. They are corporations that are owned by the same wealthy family over a couple of generations. But it's not like, oh, this is my family of five, this is my nuclear family of five people, and we live on, like, an amount of land that supports that many people living, and we work that land, and we own it. Like, that is not what actually is happening in, like, the historical situations that you could describe as having, like, a family farmer class. Um, it's, I don't believe him. I think the Elantrians owned all the land. Like, I think they were letting people work it. But, like, I think that if the Elantrians had, like, shown up on some random dude's farm and been like, hey, you have to give us everything that you made. Like, I think they could have done that. They were the unquestioned gods of their of the place where they live. Right. <laughs> but there were no classes, only Elantrians and people. 
Yeah, also, there was no stratification. Everybody what who was not Nelantrian just owned land and did their business, which is not true because we know there yeah. was a merchant class that yes. presumably is not working land, but is presumably buying up... <laughs> And right. also, we know that there are servants, that the Elantrians have servants, and the servants started the revolution that led to the merchant class taking power. This is, like, this is a vision of political economy that makes no sense. Like, it is absolutely, like, this is... And and I feel a little weird making this criticism because I've been the person in the past being like hard science fiction, hard fantasy. These aren't real things. It's not the real world. You're just making it all up. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can just say anything you want about like how a class power structure works and just like wave it away. Like if you really want me to believe that the class structure in Elantris 10 years ago was this fucking weird, you need to do a little more work for it. <laughs> you also don't get to say the words ancient Fjordel serfs yeah. and not explain what that means. Oh, well, they God. say it... later on in the chapter what that means. Okay, okay yeah, let, I, forgot, let, let me, I forgot. Yeah, I should probably continue like summarizing the chapter because there's like more shit. Um, so like, so Lukel has explained all the stuff that uh, uh, that Autumn read aloud, um, and. Uh, Serena is kind of like, okay, we need to talk more about this, but I don't want to do it in front of Yada. So they go to a little, like, I don't know, they pull into, like, a corner or some shit. Um, and, uh, Serena is like, if all this is true, how the hell did Yadon ever take the throne? He's really bad at all this shit. And Lukel is like, well, he was the head of the Merchant's Guild before the Rayod. And so when the Merchant's Guild took power, he was the guy at the head of it, like, he might not really be someone with the skills to hang on to this power, but, like, he did have this position that he's been able to parlay into his current thing. And, you know... Alright, I also just kind of want to read a paragraph of some stuff that Lukel says here. Mm -hmm. The Merchant's Guild was an autonomous organization, and many of its members didn't get along too well with the Elantrians. You see, Elantris provided free food for everyone in the area, something that made for a happy populace, but was terrible for the merchants. And like, <laughs> what do the merchants do then? <laughs> why are why is there a merchant's guild? Why did the Elantrians permit that to happen? What do the Elantrians get out of having all these merchants in their city? Like, it's clear it is explained a little bit what the merchants are doing economically, right? They're they're dealing in like luxuries. They basically struck a deal with the Elantrians and were like, okay, look, you can give away all the like. Gruel. UBI. The what? They Elantrians basically give UBI to the people of, yes, of the yes. city. They do, yeah. They like give away everything that people need to live, but not like luxury items, which the merchants guild do. They basically basically the merchants import fancy stuff to sell to other people with money like themselves. Um which and like not to the Elantrians, right? Because what do Elantrians need with luxury stuff? Clearly they can just make it all with magic if they want to. Like, and also, what is the labor of the city around Elantris that, like, people have the money to buy luxuries? Who are the people buying these luxuries? What are their jobs when yeah, the no. only consistent, like, form of 
labor provided in the as an example is like a servant of the elantrian which also what does a servant do for a god <laughs> when they can just magic up anything and do whatever they want what is the servant's purpose the sense that i get at this point is really that the elantrians just kind of enjoyed having their little pet city you know like they were like oh that's cute they want to have a class structure. I mean, that won't work because, like, we control all the production here because we can just make anything we want with magic. But, like, yeah, sure. They want to pretend to have a bourgeois class. That's cute. Like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, the way that it talks about um, eventually the Merchant's Guild struck a deal with Elantris, getting them to promise that they would only provide basic items for free, and then they could import luxuries. It makes it sound like Elantris is new. Mm-hmm. Like, the Merchant's Guild predates Elantris, and this rise of Elantrians was, like, disrupting a pre-existing the, yeah, system which, trade. We, we don't know that to be the case. We believe that Elantris has been around for centuries, according to the intro text, right? Right. Yeah, so, I- Again, much like the characters of the book, it seems like core elements of the story just began existing right before the story started. Yeah, for sure. We also get we also get um Elantris provided free food for everyone in the area, something that made for a happy populace. Um so what all these people, these commoners who owned land, what were they doing with the land? If you didn't have to work it agriculturally, what the hell are you doing with it? Also, (laughs) I assume that they're preparing fancy dishes for the Elantrians or something. But also, like, how happy are they? Because they had a revolution as soon as the Elantrians started to lose power. So... If their needs were being met so well, why would they stage a revolt the instant that that was disrupted? Like, not, I mean, it, obviously they would be upset if, oh, our free food is gone. What yeah, do we also, do? But why would their instinct be, therefore, we should kill, we should completely uproot and destroy the, the status quo that we had because, like, it got messed up even a little bit. Well, there's definitely a sense, like, when the idea of the serpents rising up against the Elantrians is brought up, that they'd been, like, waiting to do this for a long time, you know? And it was like, oh, now's our chance. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't square with this idea that they gave them, that the Elantrians, you know, gave them bread and circuses and that made them happy. Um, (laughs) Also, how is it possible that there wasn't, like, a giant famine as soon as the source of, like, the... Most of yeah. the food that people eat disappeared. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I didn't think about that at all. Like, uh, the... <sighs> oh, I was just working my cornfields for the hell of it because I just needed something to Wait, pass I can my eat days. This stuff? <laughs> oh my god! I was just growing funny plants. Good lord! Everyone, like... w- everyone was just growing weed, and then they switched over. <laughs> to growing weed. I don't understand what the the structure of this place was before Elantris fell, because it seemed like, oh, you know, Jedi. Sure. Right? You have this ancient order of magical people who, like, are clearly an authority in this 
kingdom and they're basically like Jedi. They do magic shit. They like help people or whatever. Um, but like when you introduce like some kind of representation of revolutionary politics into a structure like that without thinking about what it means like maybe this is maybe we're supposed to be asking these questions and brandon will be like aha actually the elantrians were all like abusing their servants and that's why they hated them so much even though they got you know fed and everything they were like ah but actually this sucks because we're being treated bad but it doesn't set that up because it mentions characters believing that their motivation had been because they were so pampered and arrogant that they thought themselves as high as gods. Yeah, it doesn't... You would think that that there would be a call-out post, right? Like, if if that were the case, if the twist was that the Elantrians were all shitty people, that would be common knowledge by now because it would have been part of the rhetoric of the revolution. Yeah, absolutely. It would have been something that Eodon would have been able to use in taking power, right? He would have been like, hey, look, your old masters were assholes. Uh, I'm going to tax you a lot more, but I'm not going to, like, whip you for no reason or whatever. Um, Right. But, like, the setting seems to know as little about Elantris as we, the reader, does. Do. Yeah. Also, I want to... I want to make clear and this is something that the summary on Coppermind leaves out and i think that's a mistake um the resolution of the legal case that sereni and lukel are watching is that iodon decides that the the father the peasant father who like had fled one noble to another noble's lands is going to have to go back to the original guy because he belongs to him but that his children are going to stay on the land where they were born because his explicit justification is their current master has been feeding them all this time, so I guess he deserves to own them. Um, and this is uh, an <laughs> argument taken explicitly, I think, from like arguments that people made in support of the practices of like American slavery. It's I think that Brandon Sanderson has something in his brain about slavery and American history. And he is starting to work it out here in some ways that are very uncomfortable. This comes up in a later book in Mistborn, where for one chapter at the very beginning, we talk about like plantations and stuff. And then it swiftly gets forgotten and is never brought up again. I think there's also mention of the concept of plantations, like with that word in this book as well. And it's like, hey, Brandon... Like, again, why are people working this land? Why were they working it in the first place? I'd love to know, like, what fucking crops people are growing. Like, what is the cash crop that they grow around Kai and Atlantis? It's just tobacco. <laughs> it's just tobacco and weed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the the, um, the other thing. Talk about the Fjordo Surf line. Yes. Oh yeah, we will. I would, I wanted to briefly touch on the legal case real quick. It's also Brandon is clearly putting Eodon in a wisdom of King Solomon situation right. and like showing Eodon like is not a wise king because he doesn't come to like some elegant solution in the way that Solomon would. <laughs> I mean, it's I will say I give I give Brandon a little credit here. This kind of looks in ex- external features 
kind of like a, a smart solution, you know? Because it's like, oh, it makes one of the nobles kind of happy because he got part of what he wanted. And it makes the other one kind of happy because he got part of what he wanted, right? But obviously, it's fucking monstrous. It's separating people from their family because of the institution mm -hmm. of slavery. And, like, Brandon knows that's monstrous and he's going to have all his sympathetic characters tell you it's monstrous. So, mm -hmm. like, okay, he's at least able to go that far. Like, congratulations, you're as good as, like, American public school. Um. But this is this is like if Solomon actually did cut the baby in half. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. No. Absolutely. It's like that. Um. And then we get some lines about. Um, yeah. So. How... Do you, Do you mind if I? Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. So. So like. Uh, you know. Um. Serene, like, sees this decision go down and she's like, people aren't going to stand for this shit for much longer. Like, she she sees the emotion in the father's eyes as he has his children stripped from him. And she's like, wow, he really hates Iodon. And like, yeah, no, okay, that makes sense. You're probably right, Serene. Um, and Lucal is like, well, people lived for centuries under the feudal feudal system. And that was even worse. And, and Serene's like, well, but people were used to it and they didn't know any better. Whereas the people in Elantris were treated much better only 10 years ago. So it's going to be a lot harder to actually force them to accept this kind of treatment. And they know that, like, the government can be destroyed. And, God, this is so much for me. Because on the one hand, Serene is totally right, right? Like, mm -hmm. there has just been a giant societal upheaval in this country. And so the idea that, like, the idea that Iodon doesn't see like, working-class uprising as a genuine threat to his rule is, like, very stupid on his part. It obviously is, and it should be. He should know that that's part of how he got put in this position. Um, but also, her explicit logic that it's... I mean, she literally says, people in ancient Fjordan didn't know better. To them, the feudal system was the only system. Um, and... Again, even though that's not, like, something that I'm, like... There's like a kernel of truth there, right? In order for people to engage in political struggle that betters their conditions, they need to have the understanding that that's even possible, right? And so right. It, is, it is possible for a class to have power that it doesn't wield. Um, however, the perspective here is explicitly very like, yeah, sure is the fault of those dumb serfs that they didn't rise up and kill their masters rather than like realistically systems like this like peasant revolts happened all the time in feudal societies like nobles had to do shit to put them down the idea that uh the fjordan surf system whatever that was however that's different from slavery or indentured servitude because like mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there are formal legal distinctions among like what the peasant system in medieval france versus the surf system in like feudal russia versus, like, American chattel slavery. All of those things functioned differently in various ways, right? Those are different right. class arrangements. But, like, um, I don't know what the distinctions are among these different forms of, like, oppressive feudal structure in this world. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you're just saying, like, that... I mean, it says that feudal serfs were treated worse than farm animals. But it, it says it in the way that, like, serfdom as a concept originated in Fjordel, and we all, like, that is an other, that is a foreign concept to us. Like, that is, um, that shouldn't be happening in Erelon, you know? Right. And it's also, like, hold up, so, 
the feudal system used to have this feudal serfdom. Now it doesn't. Feudal's clearly still very hierarchical, right? You still you can still swear to be someone's odive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's the deal with the feudal class structure right now? Like, did they have a revolution? Is that like is that why they're so militaristic now? Like maybe is a, did, was, did did like a shoe dareth aligned group overthrow the former feudal leaders of Fjordan. Right. Maybe. Yeah. That would make sense, but we don't have any sense of that. Well, this yeah. is we're in the fourth, right? I believe so. Yes. So, so that it could be a relatively new political system. It could yeah. be, but on the other hand, we also don't know like how often they reuse names, right? So like Yeah. Like mm. it's that doesn't mean that he's the fourth one who's held that position, right? That just maybe means mm-hmm. he's the fourth one who's been named Wern, I think. Um, Let me see what his actual title was written out as in Chapter 3. Uh, so, yeah. Um, words of Jack. Wern, Wolfden the Fourth, and then a bunch of titles that don't have numbers in them. Yeah. So. Um, I, I'm sure someday we will learn a little bit more about Fjordan's political history, um, but we sure don't know much now. Um, so to to continue with the summary um, Sereni gives this little speech about how like Iodon is not going to be able to continue doing what he's doing because the people know they can rise up Um, and Lukel is like oh you sound like Prince Rayodin and now we're finally going to get the the link up like we we noticed in previous chapters that seems like Rayodin and Lukel and Keen all have some kind of connection and now we're going to hear about it and Lukel kind of, like, reminisces a little bit about his best friend. Um, how, like, he he was a, a real sweet, optimistic guy, and he was brilliant. And um, the big, like, thing that m- lets you know that he was brilliant was that he, he knew every Aeon and could draw them with perfection. Um, which is, like, that's very interesting to me as, like, a, a marker of education when, like, they don't do anything mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. um but but i guess it's just you know it's like in some way on some level i guess the equivalent of a, a modern day person knowing like greek or latin i guess um it's also maybe a little bit calligraphy because like mm, those yes. characters are also used in their names right that's yes that's also true although they don't use they don't use aeons to like write their language do they or do they no but they use letters that like rayo is a is a symbol and is also part of his name rayoden right it is derived from the name of a character so it's it's like there's probably a way you can write the name rayoden or like represent it in a way that involves the aeon rayo but like also there's just a way to write the name rayoden that's different yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, that's fine. That's cool. Yeah. Um. So, uh, you know, Lukel like talks up Rayadin. It, it, it's, it's definitely like, um, if you wanted to be like, oh, maybe there was some kind of thing between Lukel and Rayadin, and maybe that has gives like a weird charge yeah. now to Lukel and uh, Serini's relationship. Like, you could definitely think about that. Um, I don't think you have to but you know 
Um, Luca does clearly like clearly Luca really loved and and misses uh, Rayadin. Like that's clearly true. Uh, he says that he's flawless. Yeah, you know, in everything <laughs> but cards. Yeah, uh, he's just so virtuous and upstanding and moral. And wouldn't he have been such a good king? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, like absolutely. So, um, and uh, you know, uh, Luca talks about how Rayadin liked to like like to push back against his father's authority and like speak his his mind politically a lot and Serena was like hmm, I bet Iadon didn't like that very much uh, and uh, yeah it turns out there was a lot of conflict between Iadon and Rayadin and in fact um, so much so that like frankly uh, I think it's a little ridiculous that Serena doesn't immediately come to the conclusion that Iadon had Rayadin killed um, because like Lucal is basically like, uh, you know, yeah, Iodon hated it when Rayadin would, like, say all his political opinions in court, but he couldn't do anything to stop him because the laws that Iodon had written basically let the crown prince do shit like that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's kind of like the idea that, like, there was just nothing Iodon could do about his own son and heir constantly undermining him in front of his court is is ridiculous to me. Like... Right. You can um, disinherit someone very easily. Yeah, like, it would not have been hard. Especially because, like, okay, Iodon has set himself up as a feudal lord, but, like, Iodon just created this government ten years ago. If Iodon wanted to do, like, a Roman emperor thing and be like, actually, my heir is not my biological son, it's this other dude who I think is going to be a much better leader, who I have adopted as my son. Like, Iodon has the power to do that, you know? Hey, Um, you think this is why he kept pushing titles on his brother? Wait. Oh, like, because... Because well, Keen oh. talks about how he had to like refuse all these titles. Okay, right. Stuff. So I I didn't quite get to that part, but that's 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 important. So like Luke is talking about the the political tensions that existed and that Rayadin was expressing, and he's kind of like, well, yeah, Rayadin had this kind of little group of nobles who used to talk about how they wanted social change, but uh, you know, um, I think it's probably going to fall apart now that Rayadin is dead. Um, father and I are trying to do something about this, but I've been gone for a long time. I'm out of touch, and no one trusts father. Because he won't accept a title. And Serini's like, what? Explain. Why does... Why is someone... Why is Iodon trying to give Keen titles? I thought he hated him. Um, and Lucal's like, well, his en- Iodon's entire government rests on the idea that if you are, like, smart and successful and rich enough that you get to be a noble, that's why Iodon is king. So he has to give a noble title to everyone who's smart and rich and successful or else like the logic of his kingdom falls apart. And so like Keen refusing to take a title is a, is a political stance against uh, Iodon. Um, and uh, that's, that's certainly a big c- claim There's about an idea how that here. works. There's an idea here that Iodon wants to like, preside over a perfectly logical nobility Mm -hmm. um and he can't do anything about rayadin because it would betray the logic that he created and he can't um he needs keen to uh take the titles because it would bend to his logic and like historically i mean not even historically we live in the u.s in a, like, regime that is illogical and hypocritical. There are all sorts of illogical and hypocritical governments, and if you want to do that, no one's stopping you from doing that. 
Yeah, no. <laughs> There's it's, a it's, government. <laughs> These it's systems. Very... Go ahead. Sorry. Like, these are just, they aren't consistent. These sort of, like, structures are never consistent, partially because they're just people. They're just groups Mm -hmm. of people. But, like, of course there's going to be, like, allowances here and there or, like, favors here and there. Like, yeah. uh, Like. The law is never followed exactly to the letter anywhere in the world, right? mm -hmm. Right. And, like, this idea that it can be and that, like, it is trying to be, like, that the goal of a ruling system is to rule itself according to its own rules and to, regardless of whether or not that's beneficial to it, instead of just being to control and consolidate and protect its own power... Is such a weird, like, position to take. Mm-hmm. It, it really feels. I I I said this uh, last night. Um, it really feels to me like Brandon read some important books between now and when he wrote some of his later works. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I mean, like, I said, I think he read Capital, and that's true. Uh, it's very possible he could have read some other stuff. I'm not trying to say that Brandon turns into a Marxist, um, but he just. <laughs> Has a much better understanding, I think, of, like, um, how power might function in a material way. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I also think that it's possible that, like, it's very believable to me that he read Marx and was just like, that's very interesting. I will not pursue this further, you know? I mean, lots of people, lots of people read Marx as part of, like, a sociology course, right? Like, Marx is very important to intellectual history, even if you're not a Marxist, and you, like, lots of people read Marx and are like, damn, that's interesting, but then, like, don't take away the political conclusions that, you know, a Marxist does. Right. Um, uh, yeah, like I'm not saying he becomes more uh, like a Marxist over the course of the next 15 years, but he certainly becomes more materialist in how he yes. writes. Uh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah like there there are st- so much time spent in Stormlight thinking about like the machinations of different types of power within a governmental structure and th- yeah. like the ways that like state religion is a part of that as well as like a good example of how that focus has shifted in his writing because of like oh you know of course everyone is is very devout but what actually what that actually is is that like this character has a priest who just does all the prayers for him and then he doesn't ever think about it right right and and like yeah um so uh I also, I should give Serene a little credit. I was like, I think it's really stupid that she doesn't immediately conclude that Eaton had read and killed. She does think about that possibility. I just think it's a little ridiculous that she is sort of holding it open as like, oh, maybe that happened, rather than like, why would he not do that? Like, I'm, su- <laughs> I'm surprised that Eodon didn't have Raiden killed. If I were Eodon, I would simply kill myself. <laughs> and it's, I, it's interesting that the prospect of the... The, sorry, uh, the Sheod doesn't even cross her mind. Yeah. Like that's not even on the table. Maybe pointing, perhaps, to 
a similar mindset that Raiden has of like, oh, that's yeah. for other people. That's far away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, there is the, the question, Serena brings this up, like, who's the crown prince now? And Luca's like, well, it's not totally clear. Eodon could and probably will have another son. Um, but uh, then there's also a couple of dukes who could could maybe, like, probably one of them is officially the heir at this point. Um, one of them is a guy named Duke Tellery, who is here at court today. And he is ugly because he's evil and rich. Uh... Hi, JK. How you doing? <laughs> he specifically has a big birthmark on his face. And it's, it really is just straightforwardly that trope where, like, you've got a decadent villain who is ugly. Mm-hmm. That's just what we're doing here. He's got um, rings on every finger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm surprised that he's not fat. He's actually described as lean and strong postured. Um, but, uh, Well, this isn't Dune. God. (sighs) At the very least, this guy is not fat and gay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, and you know, Luca is like, well, it would be kind of disastrous if that guy took power because he just loves to spend money all the time for no reason. Uh, Like, Eodon. Eodon is not very good at his job, but at least he, like, balances the budget. (laughs) Um, Remember, the nobles are all merchants. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And being a merchant is all about your feelings about money. Um, <laughs> not about, like, your... God. Okay. Uh, so, um... You know, uh... God. And Sereni points out that, like, even if Eodon hated Rayodin, it is kind of surprising that Eodon was apparently, like, working really hard to find a legal solution to disinherit him, which he somehow couldn't find. Bullshit. Eodon mm-hmm. wrote the laws, but whatever. Anyway, um, she's like, does he not know about the concept of, like, a succession struggle? Like, does he realize that, that could <laughs> actually be horrible if he did that? Um, and Lucal is like, yeah, I mean, seems like he didn't really care about that as much as he cared about not having Rayodin be in charge. Um, mm-hmm. And Serene's response to that is such a little, like... Such a little Twitter own. Um, mm-hmm. well, she's, she's, she loves those Twitter owns. She does love those Twitter owns. Yeah, she says, uh, he couldn't have things like freedom and compassion ruining his perfect little monarchy, Serini said. I'm like, Serini, what? You are a princess. Your father runs a perfect little monarchy. <laughs> Your father has literally been established as the good monarch. Who is different because he is a nice guy. Good lord. To his daughter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have no idea, like, how, what the class structure in her homeland is. We assume it's nice. Um, although it's Keen... probably very sunny. Here's the thing. Keen has, like, politics, right? Keen mm-hmm. wants to resist Iodon in some kind of way. And Keen doesn't speak to his brother. So, uh, there's that. I don't oh. know what that means. Hmm. But, hmm. 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 I think it's very possible that their falling out is entirely personal and actually is not supposed to mean anything about the Teoish? Teoish. Teod. Teod. Yeah, but, but it could mean something. I don't really know. We'll see. Someday we'll find out. 
Um, I should probably, like, get going. There's a lot of more shit in this chapter, huh? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so S- Serene and Lukel continue talking, and uh, Serene's like, I want to go to one of your meetings of, like, radical nobles. And Lukel is like, uh, I don't know, it might not work out very great. And Serene's like, come on, like, these people aren't even... You told me that, like, this is planned to be the last meeting, so, like, what's the harm in letting me show up? If they see me and they all freak out, then, like, they're never gonna meet again anyway. And Lukel's like, yeah, okay, fine, we'll do that. Um, so they go to lunch at, you know, Keen's place to, like, talk about it. Um, and, uh, it's another big, cute family food scene. Mm -hmm. Um, Serene is jealous of, uh, Lukel and his wife, Jala, or maybe Yala, if she's supposed to be. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember from the audiobook. You're I'm literally gonna... the only person who has access to pronunciation. Yeah, you need to pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> Write it down. This is the third time we've asked you, and you've been, oh, I don't remember. <laughs> I'm the thing is that I remember, I would remember if I was listening to the book straight through, but, mm-hmm. like, I'm listening to, like, an hour every two weeks. Sure. Okay, so that I'm on brandonsanderson.com slash dash pronunciation dash guide. Um, no new updates on the progress bars, but, you know. Yeah, that's uh, fine. And no Listen, new pro- it's, it's quarantine. Everyone's struggling to do their work. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, this is only for Aeonic names, so fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm going to say Yala just because the J in the word Fjordal is pronounced that way, and I'm pretty sure that, um, hmm. I mean, even though, even though she's very clear that she is not Fjordal, she's Fordish, but it seems like they share a language, so. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Like, she speaks Fjordal to Lukel, so. God, it's actually Kai-Yi and... I do remember, I do remember the narrator giving her an absurd, over-the-top Swedish accent. <laughs> I mean, that's clearly <laughs> like, what we're meant to think, like, so. Um, that'd be the only reason he married me. <laughs> like, just ridiculous shit. Amazing. <laughs> I love that. Uh... So, um, so they're having a meal. Everyone's kind of being the character that they are. Adian is showing up and being cartoon autistic again. It mm-hmm. sucks. It sucks. Um, everyone makes fun of, uh, Serini's bad art. Um, mm. and, uh, okay, right. So what happens? Um, at the end of the, like, at the end of dinner or lunch, rather, um, Serini decides to go take a trip like a little walk to the wall of Elantris with uh, Kaisa and Deorn, the two like youngest kids of the family. Um, and uh, oh, there's also uh, there's a little like there, there, there's some stuff where Serini gets reminded that her her boyfriend is dead and she's never actually going to be able to get married and she's sad about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what her being jealous of Lukel and his wife is supposed to be, although it definitely yeah. comes across like she's horny for Lukel. Yeah, um, no, it's definitely... <laughs> um, also, uh, what do we decide on? Kai say? K-Ice. K-Ice? She speaks like six languages. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, she's... Yeah. Oh yeah. I forgot that part. And whenever she gets upset, she just curses out everyone out in different languages. Oh, right. And she's like, 
Well, the someone says like, oh, well, they say that people can only learn six languages before they start to get jumbled in their head, and so Chaos is determined to learn seven or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so these are na- good moral people because they're studied and learned. <laughs> I yeah, love Lemony Snicket. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that's also Stephen King. Yeah, it's extremely <laughs> Stephen King. Salem's Lot ends up just being three uh, book nerds talking to each other about how um, uh, vampires are bad and what to do about the vampires, and just drawing on their different knowledge of different books because they studied different. It's but anyway. <laughs> that sounds like that sounds like um like me hanging out in college with two of my friends. Yeah, no, it's it's like a good vibe. It's like, oh, I wish I had friends like that, but that's those aren't people that exist in the real world. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, so Serene goes on this little trip to the wall with her two little cousins, um, and she's like observing the wall and you know how huge it is and how it's kind of falling apart and it's it's fascinating, um, and she's kind of comparing Kai and Elantris and and thinking about how like Elantris is fascinating, but like actually. If I want to be doing my political maneuvering, I need to focus on Kai, because that's, like, where the people are and stuff. Um, she sees some, like, like dead seons. Um, they're, like, little, like, she can see seons floating outside the wall that are just kind of drifting. And she mm-hmm. thinks about how this is supposedly what happened when, uh, like, supposedly what happens now is if a person has a bond to a seon and they are taken by the sheo, their seon goes mad. And mm-hmm. so that's what these are. Um, and uh, she gets to the top of the wall and uh, has some fear of heights, but it's fine. Um, it's kind of cute. Yeah, you know, love to love to give a girl a quirk. Mm-hmm. Um, and she spots a Giorn. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Serene's like, oh, shit. It's my rival. <laughs> There's that motherfucker. <laughs> what <Yeah>. a tool. <laughs> um, so they all kind of make their way to the front of the crowd, and they hear Hraithen doing some preaching, and he's talking about how bad the Elantrians are. Um, and uh, this is like, Serene is listening to him, and she kind of knows about the theology he's talking about, right? So he's like, um, the Elantrians are animals. Uh, they don't have any will to serve God, and... So they have, like, lost the thing that distinguishes animals from humans. And Serene's like, oh, okay, yeah, I know about that. That's the Shudareth understanding of what the difference is between humans and animals. Um, but, like, why is he telling people that? Like, what's the point of shitting on the Elantrians? Um, mm-hmm. But she's kind of like, you know, I don't actually care, like, what he thinks he's doing with this. I am just going to own him with facts and logic. Well, okay, she doesn't really own him with facts and logic. Uh, but she is going to own him. Uh, yeah. She is going to draw a sword labeled facts and logic. Yeah, 100% she's doing that. Um, but it's, she, it's like a it's like a pink plastic sword because she's she's going bimbo mode on him. I mean, mm. what, she's, what she's doing, to be honest, is like the um, argument equivalent of like, you know, that thing that shows up in martial arts movies where it's like, oh, I'm just like a... Uh, a weak doofus and I don't have any weapons on me. No one could beat me in the, a fight. The and Jackie then, Chan of no, theological the, the, debate. The drunken debater. Yeah, yeah, 100% that's what she's doing. So, you know, uh, uh, Hraithen is, is saying, like, yeah, you know, animals are stupid and humans are great. Um, and Serene is like, why? 
Um, <laughs> that, that is the exact voice the narrator uses there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, uh, so, and she, like, times it in such a way that, like, she does get the attention of the crowd, and Hraithan's kind of like, ah, oh, fuck, I gotta answer this stupid question. Um, and he, she, she refers to Jadith as Mr. Jadith, which is very cute and stupid. <laughs> um. It's very funny. <laughs> and, uh, the- Mr. Hraithen, Voldemort. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Hraithan- starts explaining like animals can only follow their own lusts and Serini is like what about like doesn't Jadith reward arrogance um and uh the Gjorn is like no 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 it's ambition not arrogance thanks um and like Serini is uh throughout this she's kind of thinking to herself like okay like this is actually baby shit he knows all these arguments that I'm making these are Mm -hmm. like centuries old theological debates and like he's got answers to them but this crowd that's listening to him doesn't know that. And all they can hear is that, like, she's asking what sound like really simple questions. And he's struggling to kind of answer her without losing his temper. Um, and it, it is, God, it honestly, I look at this and I'm like, um, this is something that, like, I mean, when you learn to be a missionary... You are trained in, like, theological arguments, right? Mm -hmm. And you learn not only about the arguments that support your beliefs, but also the common ones that, you know, the people who are teaching you believe that you're going to encounter to counter those. And they teach you counter-counter arguments, right? Like, that's that's part of how it works. So, like... This this thing where you have these people who who hold opposed beliefs, but who also have a kind of shared intellectual history, um, I'm definitely viewing a lot of, like... Brandon Sanderson's personal history here, even though obviously they are talking about a totally different religion. Like, it is not a, a point of theological certainty in, like, I don't think in, in the LDS church that, like, God rewards arrogance, right? Like, in fact, I think pretty much the opposite. Um, or, or that animals, the thing that separates animals from people is whether or not they <laughs> worship, worship God. God. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, Basically, she just kind of keeps going back and forth with him with these things where she's uh, she's asking questions that she knows he has answers to, but that she also knows are going to make him look bad and make him look like either he doesn't have answers or like his answers are things that don't make clear sense to mm-hmm. the people who are listening. Um, and uh, she's she's thinking the whole time about like, well, I obviously couldn't beat this guy in a real debate. But that's not what I'm trying to do right now. I'm just trying to make him look stupid. This isn't um, a debate, though. This is Twitter. <laughs> Basically, they're quote-tweeting each other. Yeah, 100% they are. Um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, basically, Serini wins this. And um, she pretty much just ends it being like, damn, I guess I just can't understand religion. And everyone else is kind of like, yeah, I guess religion's kind of confusing and stupid, huh? And they leave. Um. <laughs> which which does prompt a question of what is the religious landscape of of like Sh- Shukorath? Is that what it is? Yeah, like I think or... the vibe we're meant to get here is that like most of these people are probably technically speaking followers of Shukorath, but they don't really know that much about it or think about it very often. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. But uh. Yeah, we've not seen any Shukoreth religious institutions at all. 
We mm-hmm. haven't seen any religious practices. Like, come I, on. <laughs> like, nobody's gone to church. Like, we had the funeral, but we didn't even, like, have much detail for that. Like, Serini doesn't have to go to church every week now that she lives with this family and, like, have to experience a new, like, religious thing that is tied to her position. Like, there's no exploration, there's no explanation. Of, to mm-hmm. the reader of like here's where these things differ here's the significance of this religion to the people and like it's very important to the commoners but like all the nobles are kind of like ah oh, whatever roll your eyes do you, eat your communion and get back to you know extorting value from your laborers <laughs> right yeah there's nothing like that um and that's that's frustrating uh it, it, even like Serini is having a theological debate with him but she's not even thinking at all about, like, what she actually believes. Everything right. she's mm-hmm. saying is, like, her fake bimbo front. <laughs> God. I feel silly just using that word repeatedly, but it really is what she's doing. Like, it's she what she's doing. doing. A, she's she's doing, doing a performance of heightened femininity and stupidity. Like, mm-hmm. that's yeah. what it is. <laughs> My new song, Bimbo Mode. It's also <laughs> funny because the, after after the crowd disperses, like, uh, Hraithan, uh goes up to her and is like, yeah. good game. And she's like, good game. And they both acknowledge that she is not as stupid as she's playing. Like, Hraithan is like, okay, this person obviously... Like, Hraithan immediately pegs her as someone who has studied theology. Um, yeah. And, like... It is it's it is extremely, like, I grant to you the poster's honor. <laughs> Enjoy this reddit gold. You're a yes. gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, uh. By contrast, by the way, uh, 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 Diloph does not have uh, the most oh respect God. for her. Diloph <laughs> fucking hates her. And like, uh, Diloph's look- gonna go sicko mode. <laughs> she looks at Diloph and his expression and she's like, oh my God, like if Hraithan weren't here holding this guy back, like I would be fucked right now. He would just throw me off this wall. And to be honest, like, yeah. Uh, Hraithan, you should have your violent manservant kill this woman. She's a huge problem for you. Um, and I don't get the impression Eodon's gonna throw him out of the city if he does yeah, kill no, Serini, because Eodon, Eodon would... doesn't like Serini either. And, and Eodon's also really stupid, so like, if someone plotted to kill Serini, I don't think the Eodon would notice. Yeah. Well, maybe Hraithan will get there sooner or later. Um, he's, he, Hraithan does seem to have a kind of, like, like a certain um, cautiousness about overt violence. Like, I think mm-hmm. that's meant to be an actual character trait of his. So, you know, there is that. And I think the impression I get is that that is at least partially a reaction to what happened in Doolittle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That maybe he wasn't always like that, but he's like, he's he's now more more mature and more learned about, you know, the repercussions of his actions. And now he's like taking a more steady hand with things. Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe he should kill uh, Diloph, though. That's just my... <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to bite him in the ass. Um, wait, wait, wait. Sorry, did you did you mean to say that uh, Hraithan should kill Diloph? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get that what you're saying, but Diloph is, like, Diloph is like his most useful asset right now, as well as definitely a big danger to him. But Yeah, like, Diloph is going to stab him literally physically in the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he, he could be, I think, like, 
he could be doing a lot more psychology to Diloph. Like, remember how he pretty much told Diloph, like, no, the Elantrians aren't really the devil? Like, I think that was a stupid move. Um, anyway. Although, I guess, whatever. We still don't know why Diloph rejected that idea in the first place. Mm-hmm. Someday I hope we find out. Um, We're saying that a lot in this <laughs> in this episode. Someday I hope 20% of the way through the book, and we are hoping to someday find things out. Yeah. Okay, so Serini's two little cousins were super impressed by her little display. They both totally saw through the fact that she's not really that stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which I think is very funny because they met her yesterday. Um, and they were just owning her for like how bad her art is. So like you'd think that they might, especially since they're children, be kind of like, Serini, did you think that those things made sense that you said? You know that that's stupid, right? But no, they were both just like, oh my god, you're so smart and cute. Like mm-hmm. uh, You owned that guy so hard. Um, mm-hmm. That guy sucked, and uh, I have a little discussion about this where, like, apparently Keen has told Dayorn, the male little cousin, um, that the Gjorn is here to convert us all to Shudareth because uh, the crops didn't do le- well last year, so there's a, a, there's a famine now, um, and hard times make people willing to accept a man who preaches change. Um, so... Keen and even Dayorn are aware of the idea that there's some kind of building crisis in this city and that maybe Praethan is trying to take advantage of it. Um, and Serini is like, yeah, I think that I think that's basically true. Uh, and Serini's thinking about how, like, she still doesn't really know what the guy's ultimate intentions are. And, like, even though, you know, this was fun, but it was, it was kind of just playing. It was kind of just a skirmish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she kind of looks over the wall and spots some Elantrians... And Dayorn kind of explains to her that they're, you know, that they that they don't die and that they don't need to eat and, like, no one's bringing them food or doing anything. They're just basically, I mean, they're basically dead. And, uh, Serini kind of doesn't want to believe all this stuff, but, like, you know, the kids seem pretty convinced and they seem also, like, pretty sharp. So she's like, I guess, I guess they're right. Uh, but there's no way they're actually dead. She's, like, convinced that can't be true. Um, and uh, then she has, like, a an attack of, like, um, like fear of heights, basically, as, as she catches she catches the eye of two Elantrians who I think are probably, you know, meant yeah. to be our boys. Um, and she then she, she like, new type flashes and sees Rhea in. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, and she loses her balance and... Ash is like, uh, we're getting out of here. I don't want you to fall off a fucking wall and die. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's the end of Serini's chapter. Hraithan's chapter, blessedly, is only one scene, really. So Yeah, that's true. There will be... There's stuff here, but it's not as... Uh, it's not as they much kinda... as <laughs> Serini. I just wanted to say that it's very convenient that there is a time of crisis building for Hraithan to use to convert people to a new religion when he didn't even know he was coming here until like a month ago and he probably didn't know that there were all these crises happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just very convenient that he shows up with a three-month time limit while things are about to boil over. Because he's also on some level like the reconnaissance for Fjordan, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you know, who knows? Jadith probably works in mysterious ways, right? Like maybe that's (laughs) why the crops failed. Mm. Mm. 
Um, but maybe not. Uh, maybe the crops failed because everybody's only been farming these crops for 10 years because 10 years ago they didn't have to grow any wheat. <laughs> I'm telling you, they were just growing corn for the hell of it. They were just like, ah. <laughs> they were growing wheat and stuff, but only for beer. They didn't know how to make bread yet. Jesus. So I just want to read the first sentence of uh, Hraithan's chapter here, which is, If Diloph had been a dog, he would have been growling. <laughs> there is so much pet play imagery in this book around Diloph. Yes! <laughs> like, it, people are constantly saying things like, Oh, keep keep him on a short leash. And like, oh, he would be growling if he were a dog. It's like, he is a dog. <laughs> yeah, but also, he is a person. <laughs> He's a person, and there's something weird going on with him. This is not how people behave. <laughs> yeah. He's just a dog boy. He's 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 just a, a poorly trained dog boy. Dog boy GF. <laughs> God, if they gave Diloph some gender, oh boy. By they, I mean he, Brandon, because it's not like anyone else would have put it there. Yeah, Elantris is not at the point where uh, Sanderson books are entire productions with dozens of people helping. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. uh, like the foreword of like Oathbringer suggests it is now. Mm -hmm. um, Easily a hundred people worked on Oathbringer. Oh my yeah. god. Wow. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, I guess, you know, it makes a ton of sense, but like, yeah. wow, damn. Yeah, these are like big productions. Now. Like, I guess like... Multi-million dollar Kickstarter productions. The fact that God. I don't have that many friends who read Sanderson books and ha didn't for so long kind of like warped my perception of the fact that this is like one of the most popular fantasy authors right now mm -hmm. yeah, is Brandon yeah. Sanderson. And it's like, I didn't think about that. I didn't really like internalize that but like yeah he got like a million dollars on kickstarter in like an hour mm -hmm. that's uh, god that kind of sucks you know like don't use kickstarter yeah. if you're gonna use it that way like yeah you don't need to and it's bad for the people who are trying to use kickstarter who can't use any other funding platform yeah i would agree with that um it's just that like nobody talks about him like I don't know. It's weird that he could, he's obviously so prolific and so like popular, and yet, at least in circles that I run in, like nobody's ever fucking heard of him. Mm. I think that just speaks to like the weird ways in which like um, if you look at like data, like more in in, in the 2010s, like more people are reading books than than like they used to, and also like. People who read books, like, if you look at, like, are reading, like, dozens and dozens of books. Like, yeah, you get, like, people like me who have, like, oh, I've got 100 books in my Goodreads this year. And it's it's September. I'm probably going to bump that up to 120. You know, like. Written fiction is its own, like, its own fandom, its own industry. Yes. Um, yes. And it, it has a lot of, like, relationships with, say video games or movies right but it's not the same thing uh -huh. and it definitely has its own like weird little world where like i guarantee that like the people who are trying to i mean actually i was about to say something like the people who are trying to make like epic fantasy tv shows and movies probably don't know about brandon sanderson but actually that's not true but they probably think about his work as like 
here's some IP that we could license. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, right. People in TV and film often see literature as just, like, an intellectual property industry. In the same way that now, like, Disney does not care about Marvel publishing, except right. for it generates new intellectual pop- property that they can turn into, like, actually profitable stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm actually a little amazed with saying everything I've just said, that there's not any, like, um, like visual adaptation of like well, Sanderson stuff is there beyond like I know there's graphic novels that he wrote well there's stuff in production he has okay. optioned things there is a screenplay for Miss Bourne floating around yeah that makes sense it would be really bizarre if there weren't anything like that at all um, but it's interesting that nothing like that has actually like materialized yeah exactly um, it seems like there was a huge swell after Oathbringer came out a few years ago. So yeah. it, it seemed it would make sense for, for those things. You know, they take time, I guess. And yeah, uh, no, that's all I, true. I think I think like, you but know, it's interesting because I think Brandon Sanderson was Brandon Sanderson was the guy in epic fantasy circles before Oathbringer, you know, like mm-hmm. he, he kind of became that guy, I think, through finishing Wheel of Time, really. Um, mm-hmm. but it, there's a little delay, I think, between when the science fiction pub or science fiction and fantasy publishing world is like, oh, this is the guy. And the point where other industries are like, oh, that's the guy, huh? Right. Yeah. Like once you, it takes a while to spread past your like very core demographic. Mm-hmm. Um, I had something I was going to say. I don't remember what, um, but yeah, I'm sure we. Uh, the thing that I kept thinking about reading Skyward is that how much I wanted an animated, te- like, show up based yeah. on Skyward, and I was like, "Oh, this would be really cool as a movie." And then I was like, "No, wait, like, m- I'm tired of movies." Actually, <laughs> I also I I genuinely wonder. Does Brandon get into writing YA in part because YA does so well when you option it as a film? Like, mm. yeah. like, in the post-Twilight Hunger Games boom, like, if I'm Brandon, I write a couple YA novels that maybe aren't my best work because, like, it reaches a new audience, and I know that, like, that genre, um, like, gets optioned a lot, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, I'll, I mean, it's, even, like, beyond the that level of things, like... Why is also just a very profitable genre of novels, right? Yeah, exactly. If but, if I were Brandon's editor, I would simply tell him to write some YA books, and like clearly he did. Yeah, I also think that he just really likes writing. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. the, I think he enjoys the act of doing it, and so doing it in like new spaces is probably interesting. Mm-hmm. Is is yeah. my like interpretation as well? I like, really think of him as like a, a a craftsman as much as anything else, and so. You could totally sell me on, yeah, Brandon just wanted to, like, develop his craft into this new direction because that he hadn't tried. I mean, one of my favorite things he's written is the time he tried to do a little bit of a horror story. Mm -hmm. I think that was really neat and cool. And that short story I would love to see turned into, like, a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, Shadows for Silence in the Forest of Hell is, one, a fantastic name for a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, you know, I, I definitely think like when I look at how like commercial in a sense Brandon Sanderson's work is, I don't see that as something that's inauthentic. 
Um, I think he is lucky enough to have the things that he enjoys writing and like the things that fascinate him also be things that are extremely successful. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really get the sense that he is like warping his stuff to make it more marketable, except in as much as I'm sure that like, Again, like, I'm sure his editor and, like, other people who are involved with him will say things like, hey, Brandon, have you thought about doing X or Y? That seems like it's going to be really successful soon, or, like, that's really popular. And I'm sure he, like, thinks about that. But I also don't imagine... I'm sure that's not a one-way relationship, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think post-Dragonsteel, like, once Cosmere is done, and he's done, like, his, his, like, big Brandon project, you know... Mm -hmm. When he's, like, 65, I can see him definitely just gradually turning into a person who starts phoning things in. <laughs> but sure. like, you know, we're going to get Sanderson to write the novelization of the new Star Wars movie instead of Alan Dean Foster. Like, yeah. I could see that kind of thing. <laughs> that would be sick, though. We should, we should talk about Hraithan, but that would be sick. <laughs> oh, God, right. We're not done with Hraithan. We haven't started Hraithan. Oh, okay. Hraithan's chapter Hraithan. was also kind of Serini's chapter. Like, the bulk of Hraithan's action this week was in um, Serini's stuff. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, basically, Diloff is pissed about um, what Serini's doing. And uh, basically talks about how... Um, even there's some they do their little thing that they do where like Diloph says one thing and Hraithan like gently corrects it Mm -hmm. to be more in line with the actual like religion yeah uh, because Diloph is an extremist I'm talking about like what Hraithan despises and who Hraithan not Jadith is God's name. Mm-hmm. What, who and what Jadith despises or why. And he talks about uh, Jadith will return to us mm-hmm. when all men are united under like this belief. And then Diloph is like, well, all living men. Mm-hmm. We could just simply kill the non-believers. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's probably worth noting they're specifically talking about um, uh, Serini's homeland of Teod because, like, the Teosh people have been, like, particularly resistant to Shadareth. Yeah, they like, injected on, on what Hraithan views as a slight misunderstanding. They ejected all Durethi priests from their kingdom, like, wholesale. Yeah. Uh, and there is no influence there at all. They completely reject that religion uh, in its entirety. Yeah, and uh, it, it seems pretty clear that, like, Hraithan kind of thinks that maybe eventually Teod could be converted, and uh, Diloph thinks that that is impossible, and the only way to deal with them is to kill all of them. Mm-hmm. I'm excited for when we get um, Serini's version, like, Serini recounting that same event and it's not a slight misunderstanding from the teod like perspective like teod people are like no fuck y'all <laughs> yeah i would i would imagine yeah 
It is interesting that, like, Serini's been running into this uh, fucking Gjorn, and she hasn't thought, like, damn, a Gjorn, I hate those people. We kicked all of them out of our country because they suck. But rather, like, a Gjorn, interesting. Here's what I know about the geop- geopolitical situation, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. I, I mean, that ties in with her not ever talking about her own, like, religious beliefs. It's yeah. like, she's so focused on, this is what I know about the Gjorn and where the Gjorn's from. And not in the context of, this is what I'm like or where I'm from is like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which I think is just a thing that Brandon has just learned better since. Mm. Um and also, um, he he calls it invigorating that his sermon was foiled, uh-huh. <laughs> right? He, because he loves to have a, a good opponent, you know. But he doesn't necessarily want to actually fight people. Mm-hmm. But he he will gladly meet them in the do in the battlefield of ideas. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's going back to like the like the two of them tipping their hats at each other like they're both gamesmen in some way um. absolutely <laughs> and then he has a meeting with some nobles um and he's trying to convince them to sort of join him and his church because you know this will help them in after times of unrest um and some of them want specific promises in exchange for their like sort of allegiance to his cause here Mm -hmm. and he doesn't give them because he doesn't want concrete proof of treason to reach the ears of 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 iodon um so he's he's very sort of dodgy in how he's answering these questions and like um some of them are too eager, and he's like, "Ah, well, if you're swayed that easily by my by my offers, then I'm not, I'm not, I'm like distrustful of that." Um. And guess who's here? Uh-huh. Uh huh. Tellery. Oh, I yeah. I I missed I missed that connection. But when how I was could reading. you miss the large purplish birthmark? <laughs> I I was like, this is probably someone from Iodon's court that we've seen, and I can't remember who it is. And I was like twenty minutes away from having to go to work, so I was just yeah, finishing yeah. the chapter. <laughs> uh, but basically, Hraithan was like, "Look, Iodon's not going to be king forever, and he's not going to be king for the rest of his life. We all know that he's going to lose the throne soon. So where does that leave you? Because your authority and your you know, titles and everything that makes you noble comes directly from Eodon, not from anything else, because Eodon founded this order. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote down who has merit and who has influence. Um, and so if he's gone, where does that leave you? Um, so you should just think about that. Yeah. Um, Uh, he talks about a little bit about the Karathi religion, but not in any like material way. Um, yeah, and he just he also talks about 
people um, people want the Elantrians to come back, or at least they want to believe that they can come back. Um, they want to believe that that that's a possibility, and some of them do believe that the Elantrians are testing their faith with all this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't want to, you know, disregard that out of hand, because there's a chance that Elantrians will come back and punish the, those faithless. Mm-hmm. But, um, basically, that's the chapter. He, like, convinces a lot of them. There's, at some point, it, like, skips ahead and, it, like, says that he, like, talked to them for a few hours or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's something Brandon's doing here that I'm not a huge fan of that he does in a book that, like, I don't think Tilly's read, so I won't spoil anything, but, like, the this character is having a debate with like a big council of people who are not characters really yeah it's yeah we introduce this this nobleman and he's like he's very stubborn and he really believes that the elantrians will return to them someday uh and so he raises this question and herathen like addresses that question and then it's like we introduce a new nobleman who's just here for the money and here for the promises. And that person raises a question and her Ethan responds to that one. I think this scene would work a lot better if he just met with Tellery and Tellery became a character in the book, you know? Um, Because Tellery still hasn't spoken. Yeah. And I think that, like... um, This is the thing that I've talked about with the Rayad and stuff, is that this book is severely lacking in character drama i think yeah um and, and i think this gone. was an excellent scene to introduce it and, and it, it it you could rework the scene to work better for me what were you gonna say tilly oh well i was just about to say i feel like probably the the sort of the the like obvious simple answers like well you got to have all these nobles because you got to represent all these different viewpoints right but like we just had this chapter where serini spent the whole time like going through theological debates in her head about positions that she herself doesn't hold. So you could totally have a conversation between Hrathen and Tellery, where Hrathen is like, so yeah, here's my proposal, and Tellery is like, okay, I like it, but here's the things people are going to say against it. What are your answers to them, you know? You could have all the same stuff about, like, okay, are you really saying we're going to get all this change really suddenly? When you did this in Duladel, it took hundreds of years of setup. Uh, And Hrathen's answer where it's like, well... Uh, are you sure that things haven't been in decline here for a long time too? Like you could have all those conversations between someone. Mm-hmm. Who, yeah, like you could yeah. definitely have Tellery just be like, "Prove to me that you can convince anyone of this." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, it, there's also something I want to point out, mm-hmm. which is that um, people talk about. Um, Hrathen says, "Until very recently, Duladel was the seat of one of the world's oldest religions." Now, as far as Fiordo recorders can tell, that religion has been completely wiped out, at least in its pure form. And they call it the collapse of the Jesker religion. And we've mentioned the Jeskeri mysteries oh, several yeah. chapters ago. So, so that's something. Something happened. There was a... That got assimilated into the church, maybe? Or... There's a huge religion that's just gone now. Mm-hmm. 
I also want to note, um, and this, this I, I checked it with like a quick search of my ebook, and, and this did actually come up before, but I don't think we commented on it. Uh, Duladel was a republic. It was the Duladen Republic. No okay. idea what that means. Um, I don't want to make any assumptions about that actually having been like, I don't know, like a better system of government than the ones we've seen, right? Because lots of things can call themselves republics. But like, mm-hmm. uh, it is very, very interesting that something called a republic exists Mm -hmm. um when we've only really seen like monarchy and theocracy you know and like feudalism and you know certainly you can have those things together like the the roman republic was Mm -hmm. also a like feudal aristocracy in many ways but like um yeah you know we don't know what that looks like at all it's just Another one of these things where it's like, someday maybe we'll find out. Maybe Galadon will give an impassioned speech about, like, democracy. What if we had flashback chapters that, mm. like, detailed Raythan's experiences in the Duladen Republic? You really just want to be reading Way of Kings. <laughs> <laughs> I think that Brandon wants to be writing Way of Kings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he doesn't have that in him yet because it's ten years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it, or, like, twelve or whatever at this point. But, like... There's a lot of big things and big moving pieces that he's just unable to fully fit into frame. And so there's so much exposition on the sides that I feel like he wouldn't need to do if he could, like, structure the story differently. Mm -hmm. I I definitely agree. Like, it, it honestly is a little surprising to me. I mean, I know that, like, he didn't blow up immediately with Elantris, right? Um, but it is a little surprising to me, just like when I compare this to the other novels, that this book in this form got published and got popular, you know? Especially um, considering this is like the 12th novel that he'd written. And so he was like shopping around drafts of Mistborn and shopping around drafts of Way of Kings at this time. like And especially in King- the White Sand. Yeah, Way also. of Kings and White Sand. Uh, well, Way of Kings and Mistborn became very different books in publishing mm-hmm. them. But, like, he had drafts of those books when Elantris was published. And, yeah. like, yeah. I think that Mistborn is, like, the one that really took off. But, like, Elantris, there's praise for Elantris on the book cover. Like, people liked this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and, like, it did well enough that his publisher decided to stick with him, you know? It's very um. funny that the big quote on the back of my copy is from Orson Scott Card. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We haven't really talked at all, but there is, like, a real tradition of uh, Mormon science fiction writers, um, of which, like, Card is... Card's probably the other most famous one, but, like, Mm -hmm. they're not the only two. There's lots of other ones, actually. We Um, touched on this in the episode of Export that just went up on Monday, and I I had no idea about this until, like, we were talking about it on the show. I was like, oh, huh. Yeah. Interesting. It's a real, like, I I don't know why this is the case. There's, like, there are so many different reasons that this could be true, right? Um, I I assume BYU has a good English department. Um, Probably, yeah. And, like, I'm at... Sanderson teaches creative writing there. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, like, certainly... um, I think you can certainly see connections between the, the things that... Brandon Sanderson is interested in talking about and the things that are important to like 
LDS belief, mm-hmm. you know, um, like, but, uh, I don't want to like, I don't want to lean too much on that. Right. Because like Brandon Sanderson is also an individual writer with his individual interests. He's not just like defined by his religion, by mm-hmm. his like cultural background. Um, yeah, like, like Sanderson and Card are wildly different people and wildly different writers, you know, yeah, for um, sure, for sure. Um, that's a context that I don't know much about that I want to read more on mm-hmm. um, as this podcast continues. We're going to be at this for a couple of years, so <laughs> there's plenty yeah. of time for me to just, I guess, read about that. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah. One okay. One thing that I that I do know is is true, and that I wonder if this has something to do with the um, historical association of like Mormons with writing science fiction. Um, there is also a historical association of um, Mormons with working in the U.S. government. Um, like, uh, not to say, I'm not trying to make any ridiculous claims about, like, ah, the Church of Mormon controls the government. No, that's not no. fucking true. But it's just true that there are, like, a lot of Mormons who, say, work for the FBI, right? Um, and it's also true that there's a historical association between like working for the US government, particularly in kind of like an engineering capacity, and like golden age science fiction. Like if you think yeah. about the science fiction of like maybe the thirties through the sixties, a lot of the people who worked on that, like were in the Navy or had a job like on some army base or like stuff like that. Um, so those are just two associations that I know exist that mm-hmm. might have something to do with each other, but, um, I can't really say anything more than that. Uh, probably somebody out there has written or is writing like a, you know, like a sociology thesis on this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but I think that's, that's. Basically, Raythan's chapter. It's very short. It's very short. I the most of his action this week was in the Serini stuff. They mm-hmm. kind of had an overlap yeah. chapter. Yeah. Um, oh right. Actually, I do want to point one out, out one thing that's in this chapter also, which has to do with what the political position of um, Sforden is. Um, mm-hmm. Just because you know that's also been foregrounded with with Yala maybe, um, which is that it uh, Sforden is like the political center of quote unquote the East. Um, and it seems like pretty much the entirety of the East is under feudal control and follows Shudereth and I think has for generations, he's suggesting. I think so, um, yeah. So, like, that's kind of his his uh, example when he's like, hey, look, if you convert to my religion, like, things can go well for you. See how well it worked out for the East. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you can assimilate into the Empire. <laughs> yeah, pr- pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think that's going to do it for the podcast this week, unless we've got more. Um, I have one very, very silly thing to mention, which I've been meaning to for episodes now. Um, before we even thought about this podcast, uh, it became a thing that at some point Hannah just like turned to me and she said, Tilly, you're like Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere to me. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. She's not read these books. And she was like, I don't know. It's nice. My friends like it. Um, and she's like, 
She's been telling me I need to put that on the podcast, and I forgot to do it for the past two episodes. So, <laughs> Well, thank you, Hannah. Hope- thank you, Tilly. <laughs> we did get an email from Hannah today. Oh, did we? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. And I think we can, we can tackle that real quick before we sign yeah. off. So Hannah sent us an email with a question. I was going to look at the phone, but I'm not going to look at the phone. I'm going to hear it live. Hannah asks, I feel like Brando Cosmere would be a good silly sci-fi name, but I don't know if it's a Tomino name or a Friends at the Table name or whatever. Can you all please figure this one out for me? What type of outer space does the character Brando Cosmere live in? I can I almost see it as a, as a Star Wars character. That makes sense as a Star Wars. I want to posit maybe an uh, Idion name. Mmm... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think using a word like Cosmere that like suggests cosmos but also doesn't mean anything is something that Eon might do. Um in that I, that is what they did with the name of their main character. <laughs> I do like the Star Wars pull. I think that's a good one too. Cause the the Friends of the Table characters, they would start with Brando Cosmere and get to something that rhymed, maybe. You know, they would be like, this isn't quite what we want it to be. And they would, like, iterate on it a little bit. Um, And a Gundam character would, like, be Brando Cosmere, but it would be spelled, like, K-O-Z-M-E-E-R. No, a Gundam character would be Cosmere Brando. Yeah, yeah, Cosmere Brando (laughs) is definitely... Yeah, Cosmere Brando is... A Gundam character, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Co- Cosmere Brando, Brando is a yeah. member of the Crossbone Vanguard. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that answers your question, Hannah. Um, uh, who wants to do some plugs? I'll do plugs. I think I went first last time. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. Tomorrow, Em and I will be recording the uh, final episode before a brief hiatus of And Then an Aeroplane. I'm getting surgery at the end of September. <laughs> I forgot about that. Um, and so this podcast might also go on a brief hiatus as I recover it from it. Hadn't really thought about that at all. Um, but yeah, I'm getting I'm getting a surgery in at the end of September. Um, and so we are going to cover uh, Tales from Earthsea and then go on a brief hiatus. Uh, it's kind late. of the opposite of wake me up when September ends because you're <laughs> it's gonna be anesthetize me when September ends later today regression and I are recording um the next episode of hot singles we've been off for a couple weeks because of work stuff and them moving um and Nora and I are gonna do export at some point this week I hope because we have a really dumb idea for an episode that I want to do <laughs> it'll be fun yeah Tilly, where can people find you? Yeah, so uh, you can find me on Twitter at Char Asnablunt, um, and you can check out my other podcast, uh, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, which is on the Abnormal Mapping Network, um, and that's a podcast where me and my best friend Ben are going through Moby Dick uh, a few chapters at a time, um, and the vibes are very different from this show, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, if you like book podcasts, maybe give it a, give it a try. Uh, yeah, so that's me. You can find me on Twitter at NeitherNora. Find the stuff I do at NoraBlake.online. You can support the show by going to 
patreon.com slash export audio or export odd.io and toss us some money. You'll get access to some backer only shows like Duo Lane and Import Audio, which are just fun times. We just had a Duo Lane go up today, uh, right before we started recording, with M from Abnormal Mapping. And we talked about video games. Um, you can find the show on Twitter at, I think, at the Ars Arcanum or something. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> shit. I, I should know this. Yes, that's correct. At the Ars Arcanum. Um, you should give me that password to that account so I can shit post on it. I told you the password to that account. Did you? Yeah, pretty sure. Okay, well, um, tell it to me again, but off air. Okay, it's. You can bleep that out. <laughs> um, that's it for plugs, I guess. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Did we have a sign off? We had a sign off. No, we did not have a sign off. I we remember fighting. Did. I remember fading out uh, when I was editing yesterday or Monday. We're fading out on us arguing about what a sign-off should be. Uh, we had a lot you more energy like at the Brandon end of that Sanderson's podcast. Cosmere to me. <laughs> <laughs> you, the listeners, are all like Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere to us. <laughs> That's such a lengthy sign-off. <laughs> Remember, the social is predicated on its exclusions. What? I was doing the sign-off for a different podcast. <laughs> Uh, read a book. <laughs> <laughs>